Welcome to episode 10 of Miniatures Monthly at the Crate and Crowbar. My name is Chris Thurston and joining me as ever is Tom Senior. Hello. 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 10 months. It's 10 months we've been doing this. And we've now run out of Chaos Gods and that joke can die. Uh, alas. We'll Welcome to one. the infinite abyss of Malal. <laughs> What's Malal? The, uh, it's the Chaos God that's anti all Chaos Gods. It's like, this is super old school, like, oh, right. uh, way like back Realm back. of Chaos way back old old law oh um, um, malal has kind of malal has appeared in like a couple of different contexts i think over the years right. this kind of notion of the chaos god that's destined to take down all of the other chaos gods um few people would theorize oh, archaeon right? fits oh, okay. that objective mm-hmm. the emperor fits that there's a few kind of you know ways to put it the, mm. the but nonetheless, not not a thread you'd expect GW to tug on <laughs> any time soon. Let's call this the month of Malal, anyway. It's all month of Malal from now on. I love it. Good. Um, so it's been so we right before we sat down, we thought it would been a quieter month for news, and it kind of has in some ways. It feels mm. like we're kind of we're getting towards the end of the year, and it's been a very quiet year for AOS because of 40k. Yeah. Um, but actually, right at the beginning of this month, predictably right after we recorded our previous episode, there was some news uh, for um, for Age of Sigmar coming out of Blood and Glory, which was the event mm. to place right at the end of October, beginning of November. And that news regards what will be the event for next year. I think we talked about this a little bit on the previous episode, because by that time, the the Herald of Nagash had been yes. shown. Mm. These are multiple heralds of this event, which is called Malign Portance, and comes with a new logo for the game. Mm. Which means that when we opened up the Shadespire box, and I went, that looks like a new AOS logo. I <laughs> wasn't going right. mad. Yeah, um, which is, yeah, uh, which is, so this feels like, you know, for all of the kind of, I don't know if you felt it, Tom, the feeling that AOS hasn't really moved at all for like six months, since the General's Handbook. Yes. Um, it does feel like something's coming. <laughs> so you notice the logo is um, it's now a split of Sigmarite spikes and Chaos spikes, mm. which reminds me of uh, a lot of the design that went into the Warhammer 40,000 uh, book. Yeah. Where half of a logo or half of a page will have like Imperial insignia and Imperial shapes, and then the other half will have chaotic shapes. Very similar. It seems like war is coming to Not the again. world of Warhammer, <laughs> where there is only war, but sometimes more war. Can't we have a rest? No. In fact, we did have a rest. We've had a six-month rest, the, and that's the, back the to The entire order. Age of Chaos, where Chaos had won, was basically the rest. That was, that was there was a lot of running around and screaming, mm. and that was the rest state. <laughs> Good. Good. Um, so there's a few details. So a few d- official details have come out about what this actually means for the game. Um, the first model that has been shown is the Dark Oath War Queen, um, mm. which uh, is a sort of uh, female kind of barbarian chaos champion, uh, which is kind of interesting for like a bunch of different reasons. One obvious top level cool thing is that it's a new female hero and that, you know, the <laughs> the rate at which 
uh, female characters are being added to Warhammer is exponentially increasing from basically none to a couple now, <laughs> yeah, which is still an infinite increase yes, in the diversity true. of the game. So we've got Neve, we've had Neve Black Talon, who was leading the box of Stormcast Vanguard versus Nurgle in Blight War. In Blight War, uh, and now, we, now we've got a new Dark Oath and leader. There's, there's Angerad from Seven uh, Towers, yeah, yeah, um, and. And, and similarly on the Black Library side, on the novel side, loads more female characters coming into Warhammer cool. and 40k that way. Yeah, nice. But, um, in terms of models, that's good to see. Um, and I think actually it, it, this, this model could have, I, I really like this model. Hmm. Um, I think it could, it, it treads a risky ground given that there are, there are companies that have far better female representation in their games, um, like Malifaux does and, and a few other things. But, uh, and, um, Oh, I've, com- I've completely blanked on what it's called. The Dark Souls of Miniatures co-op board games that has the amazing monsters, but all of the women have their yes. bodies out. Yeah, I, I know the one you mean. Um, completely blanked. But oh, anyway, there's, a, um, there's, a, there's a there's a tendency with both Malifaux and these other games for <laughs> uh, to be set in worlds where men are burly and women are all pinups. Hmm. And obviously any kind of like uh, Red Sonia type barbarian queen thing, which is what this model is going for, yeah. risks that. And even though... Um, She's not wearing loads of armor. I actually really like the model because she's really like muscular and the armor that she is wearing is relatively practical. Mm. And she aligns, and this is an interesting thing. She, uh, her design aligns very closely with the Dark Oath Chieftain, which was a chaos champion that came with the Silver Tower box. Right. Way back when. Who is just the, the topless guy with a loincloth and an axe in each hand. Mm. Um, and this is super interesting because way back when Silver Tower came out, um, people who sort of were in the know about what the future direction was for Age of Sigmar said that this box is like your teaser for where the design of this game is going. Mm. And that box was the first time anyone had seen a Zangor. It was the first, it was the Gaunt Summoner on foot. It was the first time anyone had seen a Kyric Acolyte. Um, and then there's Mistweaver. And then, yeah. And then there was the Mistweaver Psy, mm. the uh, Tenebral Shard, which were basically High Elves and Dark Elves, respectively, yes. factions of otherwise vanished from AOS, mm. and the Dark Earth Chieftain, who was kind of like a kind of unaligned Chaos character, right? Like, yep. almost like a Chaos Marauders update. And those models are ancient. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and the interesting thing about this, this is like the tea leaves element <laughs> approach to Warhammer News, mm. is that... um Back when you could have seen Dark Oath Chieftain as that's just his that's his title that's his name he is a Dark Oath Chieftain, but now that there's this new hero coming called the Dark Oath War Queen, it kind of establishes that Dark Oath is a faction. Hmm. Dark Oath isn't a type of person, right? Yeah. Um, it's like um, you know Deathbringer is a corn title, not corn faction, but this being. Having two of them makes it a faction. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. I wonder if uh, it's interesting because they seem to be more like kind of pick up chaos warriors just to look at them. They're not Ooh. bearing much in the way of explicit chaos insignia. They're not they have stuff carved into their flesh. They've just kind of they're on the side of chaos, but they're kind of a barbarian barbarian type of archetype for for warriors. I wonder if they might represent the kind of the people who have lived through the, the mortal realms during the age of chaos mm. who have become chaos followers during that period, but nonetheless aren't necessarily just on the edge of demonhood or anything. Yeah, exactly. And they're not, they're not explicitly aligned with a given chaos God mm. in the way that acolytes and bloodbound definitely are. Yes. Um, and this is super interesting because like, I wonder if dark oath is a chaos faction that is coming next year. Yeah, that, that wouldn't surprise me yeah. because also because both slaves to darkness range and the marauder range are ancient mm. and, Safe to Darkness maybe doesn't need an update as badly, but the Marauders definitely do. Yeah. So 
um, that would be really rad. And that what this means for me is that I've put my Slaves to Darkness Chaos Mortals plan on hold. I'm going to work on Zangor instead. Yeah. Because I don't really don't want to buy a big box of Chaos Warriors, which is a really stiff old sculpt, mm. only to then for them to put out new ones the next week. Yep. Um, exciting though. It is exciting. So this comes with a bunch of other, um, but also the cool thing about this is it suggests that, you know, I started like sort of extrapolating that logic out and then Mistweaver sigh. Mm. What if Mistweaver is a faction? What if yeah. Mistweaver isn't a title like we suspected? If it, you know, what if it is equivalent to mm. the Darko thing? But it would fit in with stuff like, so for example, the Dwardin, there are very, there are different flavors of Dwardin. You, you don't just have a Dwardin army now. You have, you can have Fire Slayers or you can have Caradron Overlords. And actually, yeah, they're very takes yeah. on the same concept and Dispossessed as well. And that's an interesting idea that you have lots of different flavors to your factions. So like Vanguard and, uh, you know, extremists and normal liberators for Stormcast. But that sort of imposed on every single kind of army type. So yeah. you could have different types of high elves. The high elf dark elf distinction could be quite blurred in that context. You'd have different types of faction within those. Yeah, cool. it's really exciting. Like, um, and it does suggest that, yeah, there was probably more waiting to be revealed in Silver Tower Box than initially mm. suspected. Like, like the, um, the, the spider goblins, the little <laughs> right. eight-legged spider goblin dudes that have never appeared anywhere else, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, that's, this all seems like sort of factions in the waiting in the wings mm. for the, for the game now. The explicit rumors are that, um, the beginning of, so the rumor that actually came up today as the time we we're recording this, is that the beginning of the year is going to be a big new Nurgle wave oh, right. and possibly Skaven, oh, New yeah. Skaven. So this, uh, I don't know about the New Skaven. The New Skaven is the further out rumor. Mm. The reason for the suspicions about Nurgle is because obviously uh, on the 40k side with the Death Guard, Nurgle has had a big presence. Yeah. Also Nurgle and Blightwar, obviously that's basically the new AOS starter box and that you know there's there's obvious things like releasing the snail riding gardener man yeah particular slimex as, as a standalone model that sort of thing mm. but also nurgle is missing and has been for a while like a, quite a few key models like the great unclean one which is the nurgle oh, of yeah. the lord of change ancient, isn't it is ancient and resin um, and squat and waste and than yeah. all of the other uh, um the the beasts of nurgle unit that um Horticulous Slimux specifically references in his rules. Could you say his name again, please? Horticulous Slimux. It's the best name. <laughs> Horticulous Slimux. Just keep saying it. Uh, doesn't have a model. Mm. There's an oversight for you. Yeah. And like some more Death Guard stuff has crept out over the last couple of weeks, like the, the adorable beetle crawler thing. Yeah. And, you yeah. know, these models keep coming out. Um, and there's references to things like Pestigors, which are the Nurgle version of Zangor. Okay. Or the Nurgle version of Gores, basically. Mm. Nurgle Beastmen. And so apparently, um, at the 40k open day last weekend, I think at Warhammer world, somebody got a naughty peek at the codex chaos demons book that is coming out in December or January. Hmm. And on the back page is a picture of a plastic great and clean one and, uh, horticular slimux in 40k, which suggests that right. he's making the leap from one system to the other. Got to ask. Has he armored his shell on this snail? No, I mean, it'll, be the, like, it'll be the same model, but the conversion potential for an armored battle <laughs> snail is absolutely they're there. Gonna have, they're going to have the same model in 40k. <laughs> well, he's a demon. That, uh, so you're gonna, you can ride a snail into the battlefields of the He's a demon. <laughs> he's a demon. You read Dark Imperium. I did. Uh, Nurgle's very uh, silly. Very, uh, it's true, and I'm, I'm glad that they're embracing that. It's just there's a thing uniquely hilarious to me about that rolling up against a land raider <laughs> well it's that's the thing is like if if gilliman's going to be in every single game now 
of 40k played <laughs> yeah then sometimes he's just gonna have to fight a battle snail <laughs> <laughs> i would armor plate the battle snail up i'd do i'd go full 40k with it and yeah yeah do put some noggle armor on him i think i think it is very 40k even so mm. i think I mean, it's, a- it's a deeply silly setting in many ways so yeah r- r- riding a snail into it <laughs> but, but is it just gonna you can't just go in there with his mushrooms and his stick <laughs> he's a gardener he's a demon I'm sure it'll be fine. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so that, that, that's improper, like anonymous man on the internet says rumor type thing. Okay. Though. But it yeah. feels believable to me simply because, also because the um, the AOS Zinch stuff followed a big wave of Thousand Suns in 40k. Okay, yeah. So That's true, that's true. I, I could see the Escaven being released a little bit alongside Nurgle. Obviously, they're a good themic thing, but they tend to release oppositional mm. um factions i mean maybe that rumor is more about the shades by a faction that is coming next year that's true and yeah. i would expect that to land relatively early next year probably yeah i think that well they've they basically confirmed the next two shades by warbands it well the next one is skaven mm. and given that the the first two well, so i expect that the shades by expansions will come out in pairs mm. i think it makes comp- and i think those pairs will be skaven and fire slayers because dwarves and skaven are yeah. ancient enemies and uh, vanguard hunters and corn warriors yeah that because makes sense. again corn and stormcast yep like of all given that we know that those are the remaining warbands for this wave of shades fire yeah like that that ordering makes complete sense yeah that's really cool looking forward to those skaven love the models they're gonna be interesting in shades fire i think yeah i'm i'm kind of i don't know what faction i'm going to main in shades fire yeah. until they come out yeah basically <laughs> right <laughs> yeah all is rap, rap boys would you be up for some nurgle in aos um i don't think so yeah, like i've got way. so my my position on, on that at the moment is Given that I now feel like there's loads coming, I really want to be through my pile of shame by mm. the time this stuff comes out. Like, I'm going to build up my Zangor kind of cult, basically. Like, yeah, this, yeah. That, you know, we are in this interstitial period between phases of our sort of narrative campaign. Mm. We can obviously touch on that a little bit more later. And I want to build up a mortal force, and that's going to start with Zangor, and we can start playing a Firestorm campaign with that, I think, uh, hopefully. And then... I will, but I want to be in a I don't want to adopt the first thing that comes out next year. Yeah. If, for example, God Agnostic Chaos Marauder update comes in March or something. Mm. You know what I mean? Realistically. So that's what you really want to get into more. I'd like, a, I'd like an army that all clicks together, like mm. where I can, you know, I have big loaded, loaded demons, loads. And it's only because Zinch and, um, Nuggler opposed gods. Mm. They're on the opposite sides of the chaos square. Yeah. So anything. No graded, I probably wouldn't go for straight away. Like, it'd be the last one I'd do. Yeah, sure. And I've got some corn on the go as well. So, mm. corn on the cob. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah, likewise, I'm, I'm not too... I, I enjoy Nogle's whole thing, but I'm not into necessarily painting those models, and I've no interest in switching to Chaos, really. I'm, like, any order I'll probably consider collecting, especially if it's um, more Stormcast, obviously. And there probably will be another Stormcast release next year, because there seems to be... There's one more regular. this year. Oh, there's, a, there's a, an alternative... Lord Celestine on foot, isn't there? Yeah, who looks a lot like Meatloaf. <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah, not sure about that. Um, but he's got a shield and a proper cape uh, instead of a cape made of hammers like the other guy does. I like the cape made of hammers. Yeah, I nothing like is more well. Nothing is more Stormcast. Than, uh, the, yeah, which is a, an effect in the game. He swings it around and hammer shoots out of it, which is the most Stormcast thing. It's just like, it happens in one of the novels. And it is <laughs> yeah. as stupid in trend someone attempts yeah. to explain it in prose as it is in practice. Yeah, doesn't he try and do it in a gash? Uh, he does try and do it again. It actually happens a couple of times in the novels. Mm. Um, Foster's Bladestorm, the late... Right. Uh, Didn't really tell that of well. The, um, of the uh, 
of the Celestial Vindicators mm. uses it to surprise an orc war boss that he's locked in a duel with where he just starts spinning around and hammers start coming out of his magic cape. Surprise. Oh, I love this setting. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, so I think the thing I really want next year is either elves, obviously, because everyone's just, just begging, clamoring for elves, clamoring begging for, for any sort of elf thing. Desperate for elves. Um, and the other thing they could do is any sort of death. Um, having painted up my skeletons now for um, oh, yeah. Shadespire, like, I just absolutely love painting skeletons. I always thought I would deep down and I would, I would paint hundreds of them and I'm going to have to if I want to have a proper <laughs> big undead army. Uh, yeah. but if, they, if they, if, uh, I mean, those models have so much personality and they, they put so much personality into things that are supposed to be dead and that, that bodes well for any sort of future major death rattle releases or kind of degas releases. Yeah. The, um, I, I love the shades by skeletons. I'm going to try and pick them up over Christmas. But yeah. Like, yeah. That's the okay. one who's spinning around with the shield and the sword is my favorite skeleton <laughs> model in anything ever. It looks like he's having the most fabulous time. He's like, just loving it. Just loving it. Um, yeah, I'm sort of content to watch and, and wait and see what happens yeah. with, with AOS. It's really exciting that there's the big stuff coming because there's been lots of sort of related rumors over the last couple of months, like rumors that GW have actually struggled to keep up with demand. And that's one of the reasons that you'll get, you're seeing big range updates to one game at a time. Yeah. Like that they maybe don't have the production capability to mm. do big new releases for both AOS and 40k, even if there's enough demand to meet it. Sure. So something like Shadespire with, with its smaller kind of manufacturing mm. overhead can can do it. And things like Firestorm can come out, which is just card and stickers. Yeah, yeah. But new model ranges are a bit tougher, which is sort of good news. And you can imagine that there's a kind of building up ahead of steam if they do improve mm. that pipeline. But um, given how occupied we've been, even with oh, the yeah. most releases this year, it seems like <laughs> if they, you know, really turn it on next year, then I mean... We've already got enough to paint, probably, mm. with that, and we'll have to, you know, talk even more. I think that's the other thing for me is I don't, I don't want, I don't want the guilt of a big, bigger shame pile right. than I currently have, right? And I don't, mm. I don't want to buy everything that comes out or feel like I'm constantly pivoting. Mm. Like I haven't really, I don't know if you feel the same way. Like on the 40k side, <laughs> um, we both sort of excitedly got the eighth uh, edition big box, mm. which is a super good box. It is. But I didn't, I don't really feel like I've settled on what faction I'm actually going to do. Yeah, same. And so it, that big box, I'm going to paint my way through it and have a little Death Guard force and a little Primaris Space Marine force. Mm. But I don't know what I'll do with them then, yeah. you know? Just have some nice Space Marines on your shelf for a bit. Yeah, which is fine. Yeah, that's cool. I think uh I've really enjoyed painting the Primaris, actually. They're really fun to paint. If they kind of start bringing out like new Inquisitor models and stuff and getting into that side of the Imperium, which is why it's why I kind of really like the Admech because they are like deep into that side mm. of the Imperium, that kind of Gothic, like the, the old fashioned Gothic look that, yeah, uh, yeah. which is, I mean, I say old fashioned, I mean, the Admech are a relatively new addition to the 40k universe, aren't they? In terms of a model range of this guitar, I are anyway. Um, so like if they update that range, I'll probably get into it. And if I was going to paint anything, as I said before, it would be Admech with a combination of Primaris, but I just, I've, having so much fun with AOS and I'm really so excited about Firestorm and I kind of know what I'm getting into with Firestorm and with um, AOS yeah, stuff yeah. and I don't really know what, whether 40k will be as rewarding at the moment. I'd like to play some more of it. Yeah. Like, so one of the other big rumors going around is that AOS will actually get a rules update next year. Yeah. Okay. Which That'd is be interesting. interesting. Yeah. That, that like it won't necessarily be a general's handbook this year. It will be a, like an edition, an edition. Yeah. AOS second That'd edition. Be cool. That's been it's been three years, three years. Like yeah. it's probably yeah. about time. Yeah. Like, um, 
and yeah, AOS with some of 40k's new 40k's rules would be perfect to me. Yeah, I'd love, I'd love more protection for commanders from mm. shooting and that kind of thing. Right. But that, I'd love that. Mm. Obviously rebalance the game around that. But, yeah, yeah. You know, that'd be a uh, controversial move. No, but it would fit. I think weirdly it would fit AOS better than 40k. Right? Like, <laughs> it's got, I mean, people seem to be working with that in 40k seems to be working. I mean, they seem to be using each game as a test bed for the other game, if you know what I mean. Like they'll see how those changes go down in 40k and then probably adapt them to. Yeah, AOS. I'm impressed by how reactive they're being. Like, um, so the thing happening in 40k at the moment, I appreciate we talk about 40k less because we play it less, mm-hmm. but. Uh, chapter approved just oh, yeah. is coming out soon, which is basically the 40k version of the General's Handbook, which is real fast. I mean, it's only months after the yeah, some version. massive points changes as well, right? Like like really big rebalancing acts, which mm. is good that it's that responsive. I know I've said that before, but it's, it's mm. you know a good thing. Um, yeah, I think um, I think also partly because I have this big Zinch Demon army, I don't feel a pressure to like rush into a 40k army because if someone says like, I mean, I was talking to my friend Will the other day, who's mm. just got the the core set and has just finished. I think painting all of the Primaris side of it. So I said, come around and we'll play. Yeah. And I, I can do that because I can just throw demons on the board until there are enough. And yeah, we can do nice. space Marines versus demons. You and I could do space Marines versus demons. Mm. And like, that's fine, right? Like it's a game of 40 K. I don't need, yeah, for like, sure. I'm not in a position where I can't play. So I don't feel that pressure to dig deep down mm. a particular faction. Right. Yeah. Here. I love the setting, but for me, iOS is still capturing my imagination more. I yeah. enjoy the stories that we're telling with it at the moment for me. Yeah, um, and so, um, something that, uh, maybe before we move off AOS to some of the other news, but like, so I, I've been, I haven't finished yet, but I'm still reading Spear of Shadows by Joshua Reynolds, mm. um, which is a novel I think I mentioned on the previous episode. But at this point in it, I would say I really, really recommend it if, for anyone interested in the AOS setting or who specifically wants to help kind of finding their feet in that setting. Mm. It's the best and most convincing uh, exploration of that setting as its own thing mm. I have read. That's good. It's it genuinely like, obviously we're talking like fantasy novels here, right? Like it's not literature, but that's not what you want from it. It's like, it's a good, it's, it's, in the, it's in the upper tier of black library novels in my experience oh, with cool. it so far. Yeah, that's good. Um, it's one of the few like non Horus heresy books that I've liked as much as the Horus heresy books. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but specifically it does a really good job of, making that setting work with all of its kind of mad disparate elements and all of the bits that have been yanked out of old Warhammer and plonked into new Warhammer. It feels like a really mad, but coherent world. Mm. And it's, it becomes less of a kind of the whole sort of the, the whole notion that back when it was just big gold men fighting big red men in an infinite volcano, like, the whole argument that like, but where do people actually live in this setting? What's that like? It answers those questions, but in a much bigger and more like a madder way <laughs> than simply saying, and also there are towns here. Yeah, yeah. So like there's a city in the realm of beasts that's on the back of a giant worm and like not just a big worm, like a really big worm. Like imagine a worm. Now imagine the biggest worm. It's that worm. Wow. And everything is made out of the worm's skin and hair flakes. Ugh. And it's, but it's a civilization. It's a Sigmarite civilization with its mm. own library and its own way of worshiping Sigma. And it just rides this infinite worm forever. And the worm just eats the world and it's eating civilizations as it goes. And <laughs> it's oh, Sigma, Sigma, Sigmarites on the back yeah, of it. Yeah. They're just like they, happily. Yeah. They're just normal mortal Sigmarites. Yeah. There's a big dock. That's where the carriage and land to trade. <laughs> and like there's, you know, there are tribes that live in the shadow of the great worm and it moves a couple of feet a year and just eats entire civilizations as it goes. Wow. And, 
their entire philosophy is based around the worm as like a kind of metaphor for time and death. <laughs> right. And there are Nagash worshippers and, you know, all the different gods are present there in some way or another. Yeah. There are corn followers that have, a, you know, only a bit corn. Mm. Like, the, it's really, it's really good. Like, it's a really interesting m- bit of cosmopolitan fantasy writing. And probably the first, first thing that has made me want to go like, why well, you really could actually run a, pen and paper role-playing campaign in this setting. Yeah, okay. That's like, cool. Um, something that's helped me understand AOS a bunch recently is thinking it, it's it's a quite a lot like modern D&D in some ways, mm. in that it's a fantasy setting where, you know, there's it's not just like, you know, the dwarves live in the mountain holds and the elves live in the forest and no one ever leaves and nothing ever changes. It's very much like everyone's mingling all the time and stuff is always happening. Right. And like sort of uh forgotten realms D, it's a planar setting where there are lots of different elemental planes yeah the thing that's weird about aos is there's no normal plane <laughs> like um D has the prime material plane which is like supposed to be where all the planes combine to yeah. create the world <laughs> but aos the coolest way to understand it is it's like what if you remove the prime the prime material plane from D, so everyone is always it somewhere that has an alignment yeah so you're not in normal land you're in the realm of fire now or you're from the realm of, you know, you, you might be living in the realm of beasts, but you're from the realm of heaven. Hmm. You know, that kind of thing. Yeah, that's it's really, cool. yeah. yeah, that's interesting. That's really helped me kind of, uh, and also it gives you so much freedom to kind of figure out your own armies and allegiances and stuff. Hmm. And the book does a really good job of like, you know, one of the main characters is a vampire, hmm. one of Neferata's kind of handmaidens, but she's on the good side and she's aligned with the goodies hmm. and they don't, you know, there's some sort of, you know, expected kind of tension about that mm. but it's not just ruled out by the fiction in the way that it previously would have been yeah i mean you've watched this giant worm eat civilizations two foot at a time i mean a vampire doesn't seem so bad after that does mm. it really i mean it's just uh, into relativity terms it's just oh uh, well drinks human blood steals souls serves nagash but at the end of the day if you can kill some chaos yeah yeah you're on board. references to like people kind of um changing sides as well like people uh, okay. go from worshiping one thing to worshiping something else yeah, like yeah. um there's a corn champion in it who, for whom corn wasn't that big a change. Like that, his people have no God <laughs> and they lo- love fighting. Yeah. And then he does things for this other God and it kind of works out, but he's not very devout. He just likes killing things. Mm. And like, there's a good bit where he's riding away from some sort of tribesmen who are chasing him and he really admires them because they obviously, they obviously really care about fighting or they wouldn't chase him this hard through <laughs> right. the shadow of a giant worm. And so, he, it's almost uh, he he stops and kills all of them like, like thirty <laughs> of them, and then he f- then he regrets. He has this moment of like shit. He shouldn't have killed the last one because mm. he should have sent the last one off to return to his tribe and have kids because he's going to live forever because he's a champion of corn and can't die. Mm. So he needs that person to go home and, and have make kids more to make for more. <laughs> <laughs> he's like he's like, this moment of like um like the economics of the skull economy has been badly damaged by my momentary bloodlust yeah. and I feel bad about this now. It's like he's he's <laughs> keeping a, a herd of humans there that yeah, exactly. takes skulls every sort of 30 years, yeah. you know. Your job people is to get really swole and then fight me. <laughs> and like i love that stuff like i'm I'm, i think post in a post game of thrones world i'm really ready for big mad yeah people wrestling fantasy right like wrestling is probably the place i go with like (laughs) it's like yeah yeah heel turns faces people on fire that doesn't happen actions yeah it's good um 
and yeah, I think I definitely recommend it because you, you find yourself going like, oh man, our, our story, like the story we've been telling purely through the game completely fits in this universe. Oh, great. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, it that's just cool. Like, yeah, yeah. It feels right. You can kind of imagine that like your general tantris is just out there somewhere, mm. possibly a bit of an automata now because the amount of times he's been eaten or <laughs> a little melted. bit broken in, <laughs> yeah. in the mind. <laughs> Poor tantris. Is that what you think you'll, if he does come back in our new age, is he just going to be the robot man? I've got a plan for tantris. Right. A plantress. I've got a plantress. A plantress. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> he's, he's coming back, but it'll, it'll be like a celebrity appearance, I think, with him. Right. Um, I'm going to, uh, for our next kind of adventure, I'm going to have a new general. The, the uh, Vanguard uh, Lord Aquila will be a new character who will lead my new force. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'll have a new character as well. Actually, because of um, the, I think I mentioned this in the previous episode, but listener Chris, who sent me Neve Black Talon's head. Oh, nice. And I have since assembled the rest of things I need for a, scratch build which is going to be oh, awesome. scratch build a um, kit bash yeah, it's right. going to be my new general that's a good head she's, she's got a good <laughs> she's got a good head <laughs> she's someone sent you a head in the mail that's yeah. where we're at in this hobby yeah, now Chris a head in an envelope in yeah. fact actually someone sent it to uh, Pip at work because <laughs> really <laughs> yeah because um, you know I asked him to send it there and because um, we could guarantee it would get delivered and um, Pitt was very excited to get a present at work, oh, but it was just a tiny plastic woman's head in a in a bag. <laughs> so is this a threat? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Someone's sending me a message. Oh dear. Um, but no. But you know, many thanks for that. That's very nice. That's cool. Yeah. This week, this month, otherwise in news, has been like very dominated by Necromunda, which mm. came out, and I know that we're both giving a bit of a a miss because just too many things. But it does look cool though. It looks cool. I'm really glad I'm not. You know, I, I sometimes you get the want don't you you get the need mm. when you see something that you really love and it's like oh i really want to have that i got that with 40k don't have that for this but i'm I'm so glad that a kind of squad game that is, supports mm. city combat is is a thing now in games workshop and then there are going to be models coming up for that which is right yeah they just announced the orlock models yeah nice. I like i'm those. a bit disappointed that orlock's the next fashion the models are really nice yeah but orlock has always struggled to differentiate itself to me mm. in fact if you'd asked me which one is orlock <laughs> before Necromunda was a thing again. Yeah. That's the one I would struggle. Okay, yeah. I could kind of see that, yeah. I don't know what their deal is, really, but I quite like the models, but um, it's Forge World stuff. They're good, generic human soldier models for 40k, Mm. which I I suspect they're going to find their way into the loads of, like, guard armies and things. Right, yeah, yeah, makes sense. I I want, like, Delac and the Arbites and that lot, the weird, the weird stuff. the Arbitizeros. The other, uh, so actually, yeah, also in, in 40k news, Blood Angel and Dark Angel codexes are out oh, yeah. soon and they're doing, uh, box set, new Primaris box SKUs for like Blood Angels. Oh, so you get Bl- cool. Blood Angel intercessors and Blood Angel aggressors. Do they have like shoulder pads and stuff? Yeah. Oh, it's, nice. it's, it's the same kit, but with yeah, that's a Blood cool. Angel upgrade frame for Primaris yeah, specifically. That's nice. Yeah. Which is interesting. That's good. I like those two factions. They're not as good as Iron Hands though. <laughs> no. <laughs> he says invested. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is interesting. I, I've been torn between either Blood Angels. So I was in Italy last month mm. in Milan. This is, this is the stupidest thing, but being surrounded by that much incredible, intense, like, uh, Catholic art mm. and sculpture made me want to make paint Blood Angels. <laughs> <laughs> um, which is, I mean, there's an obvious suit line there, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Um, however, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I think partly it's like I've painted a lot of red space marines in the last year. <laughs> and so there's nothing oh, yeah. about that. Yeah. The, uh, painting red without the, um, the shininess is the really deeply satisfying thing. I love painting red. There's some of their best paints. The range of their reds. Mm, I like one red a lot. It's a good paint. Yeah. It's lovely. Yeah. You're right. So I'm still thinking about that, but I have one of the things I've been painting this month has been space marine related. Um, 
but yeah, and and so those those codexes are coming out, which is a cool thing. That is a cool thing. The other thing that was revealed yesterday, I think, this is, we're getting towards the end of the news, Tom. Mm. I'm just trying to remember all of it. Yeah, is a new uh, a, a HQ model for the uh, Adeptus Custodes, mm. the big gold emperor space oh, marine no, special man. Not seeing that. Which is uh, Trajan Valoris, who right. I think is in the Dark Imperium novel. Huh. You know the leader of the... Oh, he's kind of a dick, yeah. Custodius is kind of a dick, yeah, right? Yeah, He's getting a model. Okay, that's cool. Uh, as a HQ option. It's plastic, it's not Forge World, which is a thing, right? Mm. Like, normally, these, often these are Forge World extras. Yeah. He's got, like, a two-handed battle axe that's also a bolter, because of course he does. Sounds about right. Yeah. Really nice sculpt. Um, I'm going to put a little guess. By the time this episode comes out, they'll probably have announced this, so bear with me, right? As the time we're recording this on... Tuesday, the something, the 28th. Mm. Yep. Yep. Uh, my guess is he's going to be part of another triumvirate box. Uh. I don't think he's standalone. I think they're going to do triumvirate boxes in January. Huh. That's exciting. And it's true. here's my out, here's my complete guess. <laughs> All right. I think he's going to be with another Primark. Oh. And I think it's going to be the lion. That's my guess. Oh my right. God. Dark Angels Codex. Can it be? I reckon they're going to add Nick Primark to the game. That's well, my- yeah, okay, that makes sense. It's definitely, I mean, I expect it fully to happen bit by bit, even the ones that are supposed to be dead. Like, there are so many easy ways to resurrect them in 40k. Not Sanguinius. I don't think they're bringing back Sanguinius. Not Sanguinius, do you think? Because. Because he solves too many of their problems, doesn't he? Because also, like, an, in, like, an entire t- side to being a Blood Angel, both mechanically and narratively require sanguineous to be dead yeah right like the whole um black rage thing that happens when they have mad gene seed visions of sanguineous's death mm. sanguineous is okay <laughs> suddenly blood angels lose death companies like sorry yeah. death company um, it's it's when they it's, go the yeah, way yeah, black armor and they go off the die, right like yeah, they've yeah. just gained new rules for that they've just gained new 40k stratagems based on that i guess they could still be sad about the first time <laughs> <laughs> i think that's pushing it even for yeah the, for sure even, for arguably the most like uh, emotional marines yeah the lion though that'd be cool yeah that's my that's my wild guess okay right? yeah, who would you put in the third slot i don't know that's a hard one isn't it they're fighting nurgle so they could put a nurgle Obviously, the triumphs are actually, they tend to be aligned, don't they? Yeah, so, I, because I, I reckon, my guess for 40k is that it's going to be a mild split in the Imperium. Mm. Not like a total heresy. Yeah. Not a big old heresy. But given that this guy, Trajan, is such a dick to Gilliman about yeah. Gilliman's methods. Yeah. That, like a more conservative Primarch. A Primarch who models himself after the Emperor because he looks a lot like the Emperor. Mm. Perhaps such as the lion would be a really interesting other figurehead lionel johnson back again lionel johnson versus robert gilman <laughs> <laughs> i'd like see that yeah um that's a complete guess okay well so you yeah. can, people can hold us to that yeah <laughs> indeed yeah. recorded it on the internet um so yeah, and then the final thing I wanted to mention before we wrap up news, because I appreciate it, it's been, it, I feel like it hasn't been a newsy month, but there's loads of stuff, is I think it might be worth talking about the Battle Force boxes that they've just rolled out. These, like, their Christmas deals? Yeah, have mm. you seen these yet? What they are for this year? I've not seen the specifics. I remember seeing some leaked details about Yeah, they're doing it for pre-order last week. Okay. So they're up now. These are their £100 boxes. Mm. Yeah, they were very good last year. They were good last year. Mm. They're good this year, so... 
so it's worth talking about because I think for people who are maybe like about to make the plunge in a big way, like mm. there are going to be people for whom Shade Spire is their way in or has been this month. And then they're on the slippery slope now. They're picking up speed. They're approaching a main road. Mm. The training wheels have come up the little bicycle they're riding. They're doomed now. And they're ready to make a hundred pound kind of army purchase. It's a big drop. It is a big drop. Mm. Each of these is about, I did some maths. Each in AOS, all of the AOS ones are about a 1200 point army in a box. Nice. Which is, um, apart from one of them, which is closer to 800. I can't remember which one that is. Might be Zinch. Um, so the boxes are, well, the Stormcast one is interesting. So the Stormcast is basically the entire Vanguard range. Yeah. Um, but with the addition, the weird addition of like 12 griff hounds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the best things. There's like no ether wings in that box, but the ones that come with the, the Vanguard. Uh, yeah. Raptors. So it'll be three of those and then yeah. 12 doggos. Yeah. And I didn't realize you have to pay individually for them. They're 40 points each. Yeah. They're, yeah, they're, yeah. They're terrible in the game. Yeah. The points. It's like 480 <laughs> points of dogs. Like that's one of the reasons that's a 1300 point army. Right. Is yeah, it? Cause it's, it's like 10 Vanguard hunters and some dogs, three paladors, mm. three long strike crossbows, the Lord Aquila. And then 480 points of dogs. <laughs> Holy moly. God, that's a lot of is, dogs. Is it just too many 400, dogs? 400, hang on, how many? Do 12. Get? Yeah. Damn. <laughs> Why? <laughs> I mean, I would run it. <laughs> I think it's 12. It might be six. I think it's 12 though. Yeah, I mean, that's an excessive number of dogs. I'm tempted now though. You said that. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to run loads of dogs in games. Like, I've had so much fun running them in Path to Glory, uh, with Jim. Like, they, they're not very good, but they're actually kind of funny. And their attack and dart away ability means they can be a, quite a pest. Not for 40 points each, obviously, which is no, like, that's insane. Which is insane. It's just madness. Um, but maybe they'll get reported at some point next year. Yeah. Given that, given that a blood reaver, a corn blood reaver, right. six points each. Right. Yeah. That expresses that a dog is worth, well, actually, maybe I agree with this. Like a dog is worth about eight people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, generally, yes, I'd, I'd go with that. Was it two attacks? It's got two wounds. Doesn't have a, doesn't have a save, obviously. He's not wearing armor. Apart from the leader, which has a hat, which is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't confer a save, sadly, but the, the leader of the Griffin, the Griffin champion. I was genuinely amazed. I was trying to find the points values to do this properly. I was like, hang on. Yeah. Buy these individually absurd. at 40 points. It's each. ridiculous because, um, you know how they sell blister packs where you get like a castellant and a dog, a dog. Um, when you actually put them down on the table, you have to pay for the dog separately. Uh, it doesn't come with the cost of the castellant in terms of, uh, points. So you have to pay like 120 points for your hero and then 40 points for a stupid dog that doesn't do anything. <laughs> Which I will pay. There must time. be some reason for this. Cause there's know, a lot of them in that box. Uh, yeah. Well, maybe there is an easy way to push the points value up in the box. I don't yeah, know if they so. even think about it that way, to be honest. Though. It's, it's a, it, they're really fun to paint and then they are nice models. Yeah. And, th- and that range is awesome as well. Like there's some of their best the best models in the Stormcast range are in that box for sure. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting. Like I feel like for you, you've probably got all the things you want from that box. Yeah. There's no need for me to, I mean, I've got enough Vanguard from last Christmas to be honest, if I got another, there's no way I'd paint it all, frankly. I suppose yeah, yeah. I'd love to have six of the, um, the cavalry. Cause they're kind of, they're just crazy. Their ability to move four D six across the board in mad charges is, is really yeah. cool. And goes really well with Neve Black Talon, who has yeah. one of my favorite rules with that. Yeah. And, and I hope they release, um, just, the archetype of that type of hero. Um, mm. She's like a type of hero, isn't she? She's a she's Vanguard a, assassin or something. I can't remember what she's called. A knight. Zephyros. Yes. Yeah. Nice. That's it. Oh, it was like, it's like a wind word. 
but also a little bit like bullshit Latin. <laughs> Zephyros, there you go. A knight Zephyros. Um, so you, you can imagine running two of those with two squads of three, um, three bird cavalry and then just like smashing them across the board and having your assassin jump out in their wake and try and kill stuff. And that's a really cool idea for an army. Yeah, yeah. I love that she can basically enter hyperspace via the slipstream of right. a hench fantasy chocobo yeah I, I imagine her grabbing one of their tails <laughs> just kind of like surfing through the uh, ether yeah it's a yeah what a game um, <laughs> yeah the zinch box is is a little bit und- not, not underwhelming but like i really don't need anything that's in it so it's sure. a zango shaman 20 zango 20 Acolytes, um and three skyfires and three enlightened mm. but functionally that's six skyfires it's a good um it's a good army it's a good core it's yeah. a really good core like yeah. it's basically like it's basically my entire pile of shame <laughs> right. like if In you remove box. the chiric acolytes mm. that is literally my pile of shame yeah, so i yeah. could just spend a hundred pounds on an additional pile of shame, pile just of double. shame. got a so pile I'm of shame do, yeah. double it for 100 pounds uh, so i'm not going to do that yeah um but yeah it doesn't like one, I really like these boxes when they feel like they have a theme, mm. like more than just a faction. Yeah. These, these just do feel like, here is the entire range. That's what Here's I liked one about, of everything. I liked about the, um, the ones where they're mixing Stormcast with old the Empire models. Yeah, yeah, they were super nice. And I like that. Yeah. Um, so those are still available. Yeah. You just get a bunch of Stormcast and then a bunch of just old, but still good Empire, like cool Empire heroes and Empire, yeah. like infantrymen and stuff. You also get like, some of them has dwarves, one of them has, yeah. uh, dark elves. Mm. Like, yeah. Yeah, really cool idea. Yeah, these all feel like, like, there's a carriage in one, which is like the big boat, the little boat, ten of the men, mm. a hero, and the balloon boys. Oh, yeah. And again, it is just like one of everything in the range. Like, yeah. not everything that, you know what I mean? Like, it feels like. It's a solid very, army. It's a good, it's a nice spot. Yeah, to start these with. feel like very much like starting points. Yeah. Like, you buy yeah. this, you have this core of something. Yeah, yeah, it's cool. The 40k ones are pretty good as well, but again, that's just a mm. big old hole. Yes. That I'm not falling in. Yeah, same. Um, there's, uh, yeah, that, that, that pretty much does it for, for new stuff, at least for now, I, I suspect. I think there's some stuff being announced in early December, so probably by the time this goes up, hmm. we'll be miles out of date, but. I imagine they'll be teasing the new year as well in some ways. Like they did a very good teaser video at the end of, uh, 2016. Yeah. Which showed a lot of, hinted at a lot of the stuff to come in for. No one's emerged from a bin holding a plastic magnus yet. <laughs> no. There's still no plastic sisters. They were teased at yeah, the end of Yes, they were. Yeah. Someone's going to emerge from a bin holding a plastic, um, Lionel Johnson. That's, <laughs> I will not be satisfied until that has happened. <laughs> well, we'll see. <laughs> So what have you been up to this month, Tom? What's your month in hobby been like? So I've been mostly um, painting small projects, which has been lovely, actually. It's been so nice to just mm. paint some uh, Shades by Warbands, a really nice project, because they're so limited and the end is always in sight and you can actually lavish a lot of attention on each one, knowing that, you know, it's, it's, it's going to, there's an, it's going to end one day, Chris. Like when you, <laughs> when you start a Shades by Warband, it's going to end one day. And I've, I've painted a, um, almost all my skellies, only the, like the, rear of the cape on the general to go really the rest of them are pretty much done i would say that's been absolutely really so much fun to do them because they're such amazing models for mm. a start they're so characterful and just painting bone is really really fun because it's you can't fuck it up because i've been painting two two things really i've been painting those guys i've done some of the corn bloodbound and i find flesh really difficult and really kind of i want to do more with it than just kind of put down a flat color and then mm. wash it with right flesh aid then build it up with the relevant highlight i kind of want to make it look more fleshy and weirder and more interesting um but that's like much much harder uh, whereas with lovely bone the bone paints are very good they only take like a couple of layers 
whereas um stuff like the paler skin tones take many many layers to actually get like mm. get them up to quality means that you can get nice finish on the bones and i've really enjoyed painting their red capes because i was saying earlier the the red paints in games workshops range are absolutely beautiful they're really lovely they cover super well um they're tonally just so well matched um and i like to start with a mix of corn red and rhinox hide rhinox hide is actually a very dark kind of chocolate brown yeah or almost orange yeah oh rhinox hide so no, sorry, not Rhinox Hide. Yeah, I'm thinking of, I was thinking of Doom Ball Brown. Ignore me. <laughs> <laughs> Rhinox Hide is super dark. Uh, it's like color of soil. And mixing that with corn red, which is very, very deep, almost purpley, kind of rich, whiny, uh, color of red. And uh, when they're both those go together, you, you get almost like a velvety, uh, deep shade. Uh, and that's such a good starting point. Uh, and that makes capes especially look amazing once you've built them all the way up. So once you've got your kind of 50-50 mix of Rhinox Hide and Corn Red, uh, then you can start kind of going up through the Games Workshop spectrum of reds. And uh, as you do, I think there's one called, is it Mephiston Red? Yeah. Uh, so you've got Mephiston Red. That's, I think, the next one up. And then you start getting up to your almost orangey colours for very, very slight, small highlights on it. And once you've gone through up through that entire range on a cape or on a cloak, it looks absolutely so deep and lustrous and beautiful. Uh, and so I've just had so much fun just building that up on my undead. And it sets off against that bone white so well as well. It's just such a great, mm. great colour combination. So all my heroes have that um, red bone thing going on. And then you've got three petitioners in that warband who are just just rubbish. They're total kind of trash that you use to capture points and get in the way. And, you know, they're interesting. They're pawns, basically. Yeah, they're, they're walking obstacles. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and so I decided to do them in a different thing. Like they're, they're kind of, they're called petitioners because they're petitioning Nagash for favour, essentially. And they want to become, you know, want more of Nagash's power. They want to, you know, grow stature as the undead. Um, but they're just wearing like a different colours. They're wearing like a deep purple, which is like, is it Nagaroth Knight? Yeah, I love that paint. I use yeah, that a lot on my zinch. Super nice paint. And then a couple of, um, I think there's a slanish grey or something, which is kind of a purpley grey that it goes Demonet up. Hyde. Demonet Hyde. Maybe that's it. I can't remember precisely. Um, but uh, trying to establish a similar kind of colour and then combining that with actually like the belts and stuff, uh, uh, kind of dark turquoise. And I've taken to using Rakarth flesh for all, for loads of stuff now. Rakarth flesh is, uh, a pale, flesh color that's actually a type of gray but it's kind of a warm gray and if you mix it with stuff to lighten it up it gives you a much more kind of organic like mm. brown browny tint to it and a, a much more kind of you get much more natural colors out of it sometimes for certain types of uh s- certain types of material i find so it's really good for like leathers and for kind of adding to like red to the red brown scale mixing something with that is a nice way to get a lighter color Mm-hmm. that doesn't necessarily exist in Ghost Workshop's range. Do you use a wet palette? Um, I have a totally hacked wet palette. And what it is, is an old tea towel folded up, put into a piece of Tupperware, which I then wet. And then I put a piece of um, is it kitchen paper on it. And baking paper. Baking paper, it? that's it. And you can see it, like you can see it sticking because it goes dark and you can see the bubbles in it. And you sort of like smooth them out with your thumb. And that is basically my totally hacked together wet, wet palette. And as soon as I've covered that piece of uh, baking paper in paint, I just like throw it in the bin and just cut out another piece and it just goes mm. like that really. That's pretty much what I use because I use a, a P3, like actual wet palette in a box kind mm. of thing. It's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. And I find it's brilliant. Uh, it doesn't, 
I don't. I wouldn't use it to, my method to store paints overnight or anything. Like if I've mixed a color, I wouldn't rely on that to keep it alive for more than a few days. But in terms of actually just working with it over a session, it's it's brilliant actually, and it does save me so much paint. As we've said before on the podcast, like using a dry palette, you're just going to lose loads and loads of paint on it because it's going to dry as you as you're doing stuff. And um, and it does more importantly facilitates that thing where you get two colors. And you mix them together and you get the gradient on the palette yeah. and the gradient stays there so you can pick from it whenever you want to do stuff. And that's really, really useful. Yeah, it's definitely fun. Do you remember when we were at, um, Warhammer Fest? What is, is Warhammer Fest? Yeah. Yeah. That's when we went there. We, we, like, I don't know if you remember this. It stuck with me. We, we hovered past very briefly, I think what was probably like an heavy metal painting seminar or something like that. Mm. And the guy went, I never look at this and held up the name of the paint, which was like Thousand Suns Blue, mm. and then turned it over and went, I look at this and look at the bottom of the pot where huh. the actual shade was. Nice. And I, and like, that stuck with me. It's kind of like, oh yeah, that is, that's how it is actually how you paint. Mm. You don't look at the name, you look at the actual color that it is. Mm. And I think for me, this month has been very much about, in lots of different ways, thinking about painting more in those terms. Like, how, you know, what is the right color to use here? Cause it's not always, cause when you're getting into painting models, DW's kind of out of the box method is, is really good because yeah. it's like you know and the new app really reinforces this which is like here's your base coat mm. then you wash it with this then you layer it with this and then you highlight with this and it looks like this pretty much and that works like when you're learning techniques and stuff it works really well yeah. but I'm getting into the idea that like actually blending colors and mixing more and taking more effort of that um, has really big rewards mm. and the shades by warbands are the exact right size of project where that's not vastly inefficient for sure like yeah the base coat wash highlight thing is perfect when you are doing 20 dudes mm. and i'm going to go back to it very shortly now that i'm going to try and start working on this angle but this month i've really like because i've done um so this has been actually quite a productive month because like the last couple of months that we've been doing this i've, I've been I had like a big deadline every month like uh, blackout the event I went to or <coughs> armies on parade this month I didn't really have one and I actually got loads more done <laughs> which is kind of a weird thing interesting like I've done um, uh, three stormcast warbands so corn I did corn then I did oryx and I did uh, uh, stormcast I've done um, a little bit of terrain but not nothing massive just like a nice thing on the side mm-hmm. I've done a, a test model for a, a custom primaris space marine chapter I could talk about and I gave my Herald of Zinch on disc a new finger because it fell off during <laughs> Armies and Parade um, but what was kind of interesting is that like the the Shades Spice specifically was an opportunity to practice a lot of these techniques and kind of just try and get better mm. um, but also try and just get stuff done in a in a reasonable amount of time I feel like there's a real um, interesting tension point between those two things and I've kind of, not like in a bad way, but like you can prove, you can choose to really double down on getting stuff done or you can choose to really double down on improving specific techniques like skin painting. Hmm. Um, you can't a hundred percent do both, but you can definitely use like, you can say, I'm going to give myself a week to paint these. And I'm going to paint them as best as I can. I'm going to try and learn some new techniques on the way, yeah. but not like go nuts. Cause I've definitely had an issue in the past with like really over spending too much time on models. Hmm. Like not too much, but like my thousand sons are probably the perfect example of this. Like relative, I, I enjoy having them as a collection, but relative to the amount of time I've spent uh, playing with them, the seven step process for doing red 
that I decided I was going to do. Yeah. It, it, it wasn't the most spectacularly good use of time. I learned a lot, but you know what I mean? There's always this tension between yeah. how quickly can I get this stuff done and how quickly can I make it like the best it could possibly be? Because also at any given point, your skill level is capped by just how good you are at that point in time. Yeah. So I started to think a lot more about like, it's actually okay to just get stuff done to a decent standard and improve the next model. Mm. So I found like quite a satisfying balance between those two things this month. Cause I feel like, and weirdly because I've been getting more stuff done because I've been just getting to the finish line with stuff. I feel like I've improved a lot more, Yeah, which is kind of weird, right? Like rather than like sitting with one model and trying to perfect it, mm. I've just not bashed them out, but like gotten like given myself a deadline for every little thing, gotten through it and then felt weirdly like I've learned more. I think you learn more by doing a variety of things. So yeah. sometimes that big monolithic army project is is only going to teach you perhaps three things about how to do mm. those specific colors. Uh, but these uh, little warbands um, are a great example of how, you know, a project that lets you, lets you try out some stormcasts and try out, you know, some non-metallic metals, for example, on them and then try and do some skin and different stuff on this model range on the corn the next week. Yeah. Yeah. And you're, you're just kind of, you spread yourself across a range of different types of painting and a range of different types of surfaces and different types of, you know, fantasy between the different models. And that's probably you know, more of a crash course, right? Rather than just deep dive in how to do red metal on dudes. Yeah. And I think you learn how, um, like there's, um, I've gotten, like, I don't watch a lot of YouTube stuff for this sort of thing, but, um, there's definitely a, a through line in, um, sort of amiable bearded, American men in their thirties and forties who run YouTube channels where they give quite good advice about <laughs> right, things yeah. like DMing, which is on the pen and paper role playing side of things, which I do quite a lot and painting. Mm. And there's a channel called tabletop minions. I've no idea what the guy's called the man <laughs> from that. Okay. He's a nice man, but, things, but he has some, there's some good points that kind of stuck out to me this month. Um, <clears throat> one of them, which is that when you reach your kind of, um, plateau as a painter, mm. not in a bad way, but you just get to a point where you're like, you're not improving loads. The one thing you do do is get faster, which is really satisfying oh, yeah. because like suddenly you're just getting through stuff and you have more stuff to play with, mm. which is, I'm like, that helped me be more okay with the fact that like, I don't feel like I'm progressing by leaps and bounds, but I am getting stuff done and mm. I can show up to my next shades by a session with like three warbands that I think are all pretty well painted. So like, and that feels good because it's like, I'm just gotten, I've gotten it done. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the other thing that has really helped me this month, I've got quite a few tips, I think, of emotion from my thinking this month. Every project I've done, and you, you, cause you're completely right. Everything teaches you probably a certain amount of stuff. And mm-hmm. if you get like three very different projects done in a month, you probably learn more than you would painting an entire army. Yeah. Everything I've done this month has kind of handed off some knowledge to the next thing. Um, but one thing, and I really, really liked this, and this is probably my number one tip for this month is do two projects at the same time. Hmm. Um, and always have two things or two sets of things base coated and ready, ready to go. Um, and that, that really is how I managed to get as much done as I've done this month. Yeah. Because beginning of the month I was working on corn, but like, I mean, it's the smallest thing in the world, but my Herald on disc, uh, resin model finger snapped off Mm. inside my carry case. No way I'm getting it back. So I had to do a little conversion. I got a finger from an unused pink horror arm and, you know, filed away the, the break and used some green stuff. And I was really glad I kept my bits box because it was kind of a perfect example of that. Yeah. And I had to repaint the hand to kind of, you know, make that work. But that was always sat to the side as like a pile of bits and stuff that I needed to deal with while I had the corn on the go. And as soon as the corn on the cob, as soon as the corn on the cob, <laughs> always have some corn on the cob. I always have some corn on the cob. And, um, while I was 
doing that, the moment I'd get bored or I'd be sat not knowing what to do with the model in front of me, mm. I would just pick up the other thing and do that. And that means that you're always making some progress, even if it's not linear. Mm. You sort of expand into something else. And then after that, I'd had uh, my half-painted first salamander model, like when I was going to do salamanders for my Primaris Space Marines. Yeah. Sat awkwardly few layers base coated because it turns out warpstone glow is the worst paint in the world <laughs> and i decided fuck it i'm going to do a, a custom primaris color scheme which i might talk about a little bit more in the future hmm. if we if we return to that as an army idea but so i just went and sprayed it gray again had it set next to me and then when i was working through some other stuff i would just do some work on that and then, you know, this week, well, as I've been working on the Stormcast for Shadespire, I've had some terrain on the side, some like, uh, resin terrain. I got a games expo earlier in the year, just some ruins. And whenever I just really didn't want to edge highlight some, or like work on the, the layered kind of armor effect for the, the Stormcast, I just dry brush some terrain for a bit. Mm. And there was no like faff in terms of assembly or having to spray something. Cause I'd done it all in a big batch. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the key thing is making sure that you, it's not like, I'll start a new project. I'll go and open a box of models, assemble, mm. spray paint. It's like, it's right there. So you can just literally stop what you're doing, paint, reach over and just do something else for a bit. Yeah, yeah. And I found that really helpful from a productivity point of mm. view and possibly the best way to deal with your shame pile. Cause if your shame pile is like mine, you've got several different projects represented in there. Like I've got some Zangor next to some 40 K stuff next to, etc. So I'm going to base coat next week or after this, like quite a few different things. So that I can just make sort of broad progress. And I think that's probably the most useful thing I've figured out this month. Yeah, that's sweet. Because you're in that position, Tom, right? Because you've got your Sylvan Earth, you've got some, you've got loads, of, you've got a Star Trek. Just, <laughs> get that star, just sit that Star Trek next to your tank. That's game. what I need to do. I need him to be just, I need his eyes to shame me. I'm just, just going to rotate him towards the, me at the, all the times. Star Trek. Just like staring at me. So I, I know I have to do him. Um, yeah, you're right. So I've been doing something very similar, just flipping between warbands, also doing some Sylvan Earth. Uh, painted kind of half um Kernoth Hunter in the final colour scheme which I've decided on for myself and Eth. It's great by the way. Uh, I'm yeah, really I'm really like happy with the way that turned out, thanks. But yeah, yeah, I'm really happy with the way that turned out. Because um I think for an army, once you've got the three colours down, they're almost like you need the two basic colours for the clothing or whatever the main kind of ones are, then you need the pop colour. And I like I've got it for the silver neth now. It's going to be your kind of silver birch. I think you're ignoring the chromatic oil shift effect and the eight different colours of eyes, <laughs> Tom, that I've experienced <laughs> with armies. Like, but, but um, so for your zinch, you've got um, you've got uh, what about the multi-hued feathers that everyone is sprouting from their? <laughs> but they're foreheads? all kind of they're all kind of greeny blue, right? It's not that simple. Tom. <laughs> Sometimes they're purple. <laughs> yeah, greeny blue, purple, and the gold pop. Sure, fine, whatever. Uh, what the, about the endless lapis lazuli? <laughs> the the chromatic uh, starscapes painted on the base. Obviously, all that's just rad, but I think when it comes to the identity of an army... Yeah. Um, oh, remember, no, you're completely right. I've just fallen into a really deep fucking hole and I can't get out. No, but that's awesome, because like, <laughs> when you actually like kind of look closer at the models, that comes out. But the identity of the army, at a glance, is is that kind of colour profile, really, and the silhouette profile. And I remember like going around a lot of game studios for work and stuff... Um, you see artists do kind of like little chevrons 
So for yeah. for a faction, they'll just have like a little kind of it'll be a little rectangle, and most of it will be a primary color. Then there'll be like sub sub colors, and the entire like color identity of like literally an RTS army um, that I was I was at a studio for in fact a World Warhammer Forty Thousand game um, where they were they condensed the identities of the armies into these color chevrons, and that just so that they knew they would differentiate them, they knew that you know this is the identity of the army in one kind of swatch basically mm. and that certainly applies to warhammer painting that certainly applies if you're i think if you're trying to create an identity for, for an army just a, f- a few main color combinations that are consistent across the whole force and you can have some variations within that but as long as those are nailed down and those are good and you know that on some test models mm. they look good um then you're gonna it's gonna extend out to the rest of the army and that's where i'm at with my silver death now where doing that kind of hunter is confirmed that that silver birch bone tone goes well with that red and <laughs> bone, bone tone <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that the pop color on my um dryads uh, these quite bright yellow autumnal leaves goes well with both of those and like those three will see me through even if i add bits of green in there and bits of other things yeah it's really striking like mm. just one of those things just like you see it immediately you kind of get it mm. like and then it looks really good that's a test models really just like painting lots of dryads to slightly different tones to get to that yeah, and like it's possible for that to like not work as well, and like, no, yeah, have for to sure. make adjustments is yeah. And then you just try to try again a different one. I, mean, I remember when I was first thinking about my Vanguard, I was thinking about doing like a reverse color scheme to the rest of my Stormcast and having them have blue armor with like gold trim, right? Um, and I did a test model. I bought um, a ten pound box of the three libs that you get the really kind of easy fit ones, yeah, yeah. just to test techniques and stuff on them. Really, and that's actually uh, something I'd recommend doing. That'd be my tip for the week. If you're, mm. if you're, th- it's it's cool to have test models, and they're pretty cheap, and you can just strip them and paint over them, and it doesn't really matter if you're not really intending to put them on the table. Um, and yeah, so I tried this reverse color scheme, which looked fucking awful. <laughs> so I never did that again. But if you reverse a hammers of sigma, don't you just get an ultramarine? Uh, it looks a bit different because Cantal Blue is so different, right? Tonally to um, yeah, uh, to Ultramarine Blue, which, uh, as I've said before, I just dislike that color, tone of color. Um, my favorite Ultramarine armies shift them closer to Crimson Fists. Obviously, Cantor is you know yeah. Crimson Fist, Pedro Cantor, Pedro Cantor, yeah. So that's I mean, I mean, part of me wishes I'd gone with Crimson Fists for my Primaris. You know, I just love still those time. Colors. There's still time. It's true. I've, I've painted like a couple of squads of them now. Okay, there isn't the, time. There isn't time. <laughs> they look cool though. I like the look, the look of the um the the black eye fist space means, but um mm. yeah, maybe one day, Chris. So, one thing that I did want to share as a as a technique, like I don't know if it's a perfect technique, but I've <clears throat> it's gone pretty well for me. Is like you talked about painting flesh earlier. Mm. Like, um, I approach my corn for shades by as a flesh painting kind of. I'm going to try doing this differently. Yeah, like I'm, exactly what you just said. Like I'm not going to do the base coat Reichland wash mm. thing. Um, and I'm really pleased with how they've come out. But what was interesting is I, cause I've read a lot about like how different miniature painters do skin. Yeah. And I've ended up on it with a system that I've pretty happy with. Mm. And more importantly, feels like you can get decent results with a similar process, regardless of the skin tone. Both within human skin tones, but also non-human skin tones. And the reason I think this works is I used exactly the same method for my corn, who are of a variety of ethnicities, um, and my orcs that I did immediately afterwards, who are all green. So the, the method that I found, and I think this is again due to the idea of like looking towards the tone of colors rather than specifically their, what it says on the tub mm. and what, what the tutorial says to do. So, 
the way I do skin now is a, a base coat of whatever the kind of median skin tone is going to be, not the darkest tone. Cause typically you build up from the darkest tone, yeah. but like whatever, like whatever color the skin would be under neutral light. And obviously it's helpful if this is something that comes out of the pot, that color, right? Which is, it's been so far. Mm. And often this means a few extra thin layers because often you're painting a brighter color than you would normally want over gray. So, um, I use sort of, um, a Gawthor brown for like a kind of medium tanned skin mm. to my Stormcast dude and on a few of the corn, um, dryad bark for darker skin and Rakarth flesh for very light skin. And then, um, then I make a glaze out of whatever that base tone is, Lamia medium and corn red. Hmm. But specifically, and because I've tested this in a few different ways, the glaze is not just the skin tone plus red. It's the skin tone plus whatever color the blood is. Right. So for Zangor, I'm going to do this slightly differently. But for orcs, orcs tend to have red blood. So it was green and red, which yeah. makes it sort of like muddy brown. Yeah. Um, but it makes a warmer, basically it makes a warmer, redder version of the paint you just used mm. because that's what happens when you mix red. And then, um, you glaze that, which, uh, makes them a lot pinker, basically. And then intensify the red slightly, which can just mean thickening the mixture. Like it could just mean less Lamia medium and painting that into the shades, into the recesses, but also anywhere on the body where blood tends to, pool mm. like if you look at pictures of people you can things like earlobes and um sort of around sort of around the sides and flanks and um in sort of between muscles and like where where you know in hands like places where pinkness tends to or redness tends to sort of settle into humans like this can be harder with darker skin tones where you can mix in a bit of purple instead mm. but it's it, it actually works pretty well regardless so the proportions right and then I'd mix that base skin tone with a bit of black, which makes a much cooler shade, like a cooler kind of shadow. Mm. And then I painted that in as a glaze into like armpits and, uh, crux of elbows and anywhere where it's partly shadow, but it's also partly like, uh, and, but also th- like, um, eyelids and lips, which tend to, uh, look right as a kind of cooler shade. Mm. And then highlight it back up again using that same base skin tone, which kind of pulls some things through and then mixing that base skin tone with whatever color the light is that they're being affected by, which is usually white or bone. So like that would be at that point, like Gawthor brown with a bit of uh screaming skull. Yeah. Like something like that. And then doing sort of fine highlighting with that. And it ends up with a much subtler kind of skin gradient than you get if you just wash them. Sometimes I do use a bit of Reichland to warm them up a bit if it doesn't look quite right. Yeah, right. But I found that technique um quite helpful as a general rule. Like you can adjust like I know people some like advocate like a purple wash for darker skin tones and things. Mm. And that that does work. And I think it's probably a lot faster, but I'm pretty happy with how this came out. And it creates warmth in the right places on the model. But also the interesting thing was I applied exactly that method, including, you know, making a glaze with the color of blood and that kind of thing. Uh, to orcs and i'm really pleased with how that came out um mm. so hopefully it's a relatively transferable way of doing kind of subtle skin like it's not that mm. kind of hard like the old thing you used to get when you saw like pictures of like katachan jungle warriors in red in in white dwarf where it looked like like every single individual man was like a bag of tomatoes that had <laughs> right. been like you know spray painted 
like cream. Mm. That doesn't, that wasn't a good analogy. But <laughs> that's a strange <laughs> thing to do to a man. The uh, musculature is so exaggerated that that's kind of what I often struggle with when I'm painting the skin because, um, I don't know, like edge highlighting doesn't work in the same way when you're working with lots of bulbous forms like that. Yeah, you have to kind of follow the light rather mm. than because skin reflects light slightly under the surface of the skin as well. So it's a much more diffuse. diffuse yeah, across yeah. the thing. Unless you are Severin Steelheart, the leader of the, uh, <laughs> who is basically Chiseled. just like the, yeah, he is the patron saint of cheek- cheekbones. Yeah, like yeah. you can just do a fine edge light highlight along his, along his fucking cheeks. And that's fine. <laughs> that's the only thing the light touches. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I found that super helpful um, as a sort of general approach hmm. i just went real deep on that stuff this month so like because after the corn i did um the oryx who were a delight to paint they're yeah. big flat surfaces that you can paint big simple shapes on everything's really easy mm. because the idea is that armor has been painted by orcs <laughs> <laughs> yeah if you go slightly wrong an orc did it <laughs> exactly and then the shape the stormcast which um like you said was a kind of experiment in it, I wouldn't really call it non-metallic metals so much as like painting a reflective yeah. surface. I'm pretty pleased how they came out, but that again was just lots of wet blending. Yeah. Like it's, you know, not, not going overboard, but also trying to be smart about how to highlight and shade a given color, mm. which is just a practice thing. Like yeah. there's loads of purple, even though they have turquoise armor, there's loads of purple mm. because it's a good, cool recess shade. Yeah. Nice. Cool shades. You like purple. I like using purple as a low light. Hmm. So yeah, that's been an interesting one. The, um, man, I feel like a really busy month, but I'm not sure if there's any other kind of learnings from it beyond, beyond, I guess, just, yeah, like thinking about what the color, like thinking about the circumstances of the character is something I've started doing a lot more. Like what is the color of the light? What shade do I want to create? Mm. Cause I did, I did make one big mistake, I think this month, which was, um, with my corn, my corn blood reavers are done in the same style as the slaughter priest that I did ages ago. And we will talk about him next. We played with him today, mm. and the um. But when I first did them, I, I kind of wanted them to be more grounded. Like they have weapons that are at least partially on fire, or that have been dipped in a forge, which is something I, an effect I wanted, and that comes out okay. But they have like canvas pants, and which is for a reason. Like I, I don't like again thinking about the practical nature of it. Like I like the idea that a lot of corn blood reavers are just like. Um, <clears throat> like berserk former slaves of chaos lords and things that have, have run amok, but they don't necessarily have access to the best gear. And I've never really understood the logic of them having this red armor. Right. And they've really understood that for corn. Cause like, mm. where do they get it? How, when do they paint it? You know yeah. what I mean? What's their factory look like? Yeah. Mm. So I've always put them in like bronze and iron that is unpainted and sort of rough because that makes more sense to me. Yeah. But it does make them look a little bit, but it, what it meant was my, when I first finished my blood reavers, they were concentrated brown and khaki. Mm. Um, and I don't dislike that effect, but it felt like something was missing. And then I realized that it's because partly like some of them have like skulls embedded in their armor, like actual skulls. And I painted them in bone, but there's functionally no difference between bone and khaki mm. and brown, right? We're talking about the bone tone. Sometimes the bone so, tone's back. Sometimes you just screw up the bone tone. So what I did uh, yesterday was go back over them and pick out those skulls instead, as if they were kind of like molten metal, mm. like skulls of burning metal, kind of pushing their way through the armor, which is a lot more metal in that particular sense. Yeah. 
and that's that's helped a lot because also it just had the practical effect of like even though i'd had all these ideas they didn't actually work and acknowledging that and going back and just changing one thing that meant that suddenly there was a bit more of a shock of color in those models yeah, yeah. was like oh i fixed it now hmm. and i can be at peace also i didn't like the fact that there was such a big contrast between the blue of the bases and the bone tone on the bases mm. so i just covered them in agrox earth shade and it's fine now job done <laughs> yeah. man agrox yeah that fixes lots of stuff a friend once described it as liquid talent <laughs> that's good i like that yeah and he's right yeah for sure now that we've um discussed how to hone your bone tone <laughs> <laughs> uh, should we talk about what we've been playing yeah or well, what we've been up played to, today in fact what we played today well i mean you've had a, a bigger month for you finished your path to glory campaign we should talk about touching that briefly yeah i think oh yeah i don't think uh, i'd finished the last time we did this no you hadn't no we did um chip and i did our final battle and it was um it was a brutal smash lots of people died uh my tantris die again tantris I believe got eaten by a terrorgeist again. <laughs> like he got swallowed whole by a terrorgeist, um, a few, quite a few battles ago. And at the end of the thing, you kind of roll for what happens to your main characters. And Tantris, um, became like mentally scarred by this. So at the start of every hero phase, Tantris had to roll a dice and, uh, on a roll of one to three, or I think a roll of one or something, he would just like become an idiot. Like it would be consumed by memories of being eaten by a terror guy, sort of sliding into its gullet and being slowly digested until Sigma, I don't know how, rests his soul back from inside the terror guy somehow. Um, but on a roll of like four or five plus or something, he would come inspired and do extra rolls to hit and wound and stuff like that. So as his awful time in the path to glory was reflected in the rules for him. And uh, maybe his, um, men- like maybe his disturbance was simply that he's really into Vor now. <laughs> that would make sense that would make sense of why it happened again yeah <laughs> just diving in there <laughs> tantrus no <laughs> my uh i think that um my relics of the ash bearer died again but he he pretty much got the job done um that's what he does that's what he Incinerates does incinerates loads of change and yeah he he's he's the brains behind the operation very slowly walks across the battlefield uh getting getting stuff like that's this whole thing so yeah it's been all, it was the final battle and i can't remember too many details of it because it's a few weeks ago but it was really nice to wrap that up and um to get a victory even though like the oh, yeah, congratulations have been routinely losing for most of it but that's the nice thing about both skirmish and path to glory is that it's kind of about you know the journey is it's not about like winning so much um you want to kind of win for the extra points so you can add cool new stuff to your army but ultimately it was just a, a round back and forth between these two very, very different forces. And it was so cool to fight the undead because, uh, the, the ghouls are just so, so different to, uh, both Siege and Sigmar and anything else for the whole arc from skirmish through to path to glory is a really, really fun arc. If you've got mm. someone who you can play consistently with and build a collection with, um, we've had a great time doing that. And we played a little bit of skirmish today ourselves. Yeah. yeah. So we've started a, like we say, we're in this interstitial period now between, um, phases now that we've finished our kind of romgate war era saga mm. and the uh this civilization this uh this zinchian kind of maelstrom in the realm of battle has been finally put to rest yep sorcerer lord annihilated and now reincarnated Reborn. as a lord castellan mm. um you know i have now this sense that this ruined ancient kind of place of power is now kind of attracting mm. scattered Zinch worshippers from across the realms and they're going to form a new army that's going to cause a problem for your sort of Stormcast forces hundreds of years down the line. Yeah. 
But in that interstitial period, we sort of started it like, well, I think actually I had enough fun with this today that I'm happy to call this a skirmish campaign now mm. that might become a category campaign. Yeah, yeah. But with two completely different forces. Mm. So it's my corn who have not had a kind of outing for me yet. No. Um, and your Sylvaneth who were present at that final battle. Present is the correct, <laughs> the correct term. Well, the branch, the branch which, right. the branch which did okay. She took some wounds from the Heralder. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Yeah. She's not necessarily his friend, but. The Wanderers were also there. They were also, they were present. Yeah. And they're not present for lots of it. Yeah. They ran away. Um, but yeah, so what we did is we set up and what, one thing I really loved about this just straight away playing skirmish again was how quick it was to set up. Yeah. Somebody wasn't it? Like we just, I mean, obviously we're playing with like five models each on a four foot by four foot board, mm. but I set up a decent amount of terrain, set up my tower and all that stuff. And it looks great. Yeah. Like and we got, and we got eerily perfect uh, scenery rolls. Mm. Like really the, fitting. Yeah. Yeah. Like the tower in the middle was arcane. That was the ruins. The trees were inspiring to you, which makes sense. Yeah. Cause Sylvaneth yeah. and both the, all the ruins I'd painted this month, um, were crumbling, which means that if someone runs across, it's basically the, a variant on deadly terrain for yeah. skirmish, which is if you run across it, you roll a dice on a one, the model, uh, dies, but the scenery is removed, which I really like because yeah, it me means that it's not just eating people. It's, mm. um, I really like the terrain rules for, um, skirmish and it's one of the things that they do in new edition of the game of Age of Sigma. And um, I'd like to see them kind of, take another look at all of the terrain types mm. in the game. I think they, they're so variable and a lot of them don't do very much. And yeah, I think. Yeah. We'll and all they're a bit gamey and weird. Yeah. Which is, yeah. Almost all the rules I don't like in Age of Sigma are the ones that are a bit gamey and weird. Yeah. Um, but this felt right. Yeah. It's different around. We were, we were playing right at the beginning of the skirmish campaign. So if you listen to the pod back when we did, we covered skirmish right when it came out, we played this scenario back then, which is called, um, it's called Clash at Dawn, which is where you kind of randomly deploy in quadrants. Mm. And there's probably not, not tons to say about this game. Well, there is, but it wasn't like, we don't, don't expect a battle report on the scale of one of our 2000 point <laughs> clashes because, um, this was, you know, literally a skirmish between two warbands. But not without instant. There were still stories and little fun things. Yeah, but that's the thing is there were a surprising number of stories. Yeah. We sort of get personality. So we should talk about what we had. So I brought, um, all of the Shadespire Reavers as just as blood reavers but that makes sense to me like i'm just using them as yeah as blood reavers led by a slaughter priest who's one of my favorite models and um it was the basis the test model for this entire corn color scheme which is this sort of like glowering bronze and iron with loads of flame effects like flaming eyes and things mm. um, and i really like how he looks and I've re- i really like the personality implied by that model like he has um uh his hands are like uh, like scarred and ash black up to the like middle of his forearms, which is, I wanted to look like he's just stuffed, st- put his hands in, in a forge. A forge. Yeah. Like that's, you know, that's who these people are supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, wh- who is, who is your for your, uh, force? So, um, I was obviously had some Sildeneth and it was led by the branch, Witch, who was also the leader of the little squad of poor wanderers who got caught up in that. Yeah, she's returning to this location. Maybe. Yeah. I think she's, um, she's definitely scouting it. And she's definitely kind of kept her eye on it and seeking to extend Alariel's presence deeper into the realms. Um, and, uh, yeah, so she led, uh, a couple of wanderers, very brave souls to come back to this place where their brethren were r- routinely slaughtered by an army of, uh, pink griblies in the previous battle. Um, and she also had a couple of dryads who look very out of place <laughs> in the realm of metal. Uh, so it's a very small f- force for, 
for Sylvaneth, and especially because they tend to thrive on being there in number, and it was kind of interesting to play with these characters in. A yeah, like and super quick way. as well. Like yeah. so, the way it works is you roll a dice and you deploy a model in different quadrants of the board based on um, where you roll. Hmm. And the net result of this was that I actually got a little bit lucky and I rolled the result that allows you to deploy wherever you like a couple of times, which mm. meant I could set up a little force with my Slaughter Priest and two dudes. I knew very much that the Reavers are basically chumps and the Slaughter Priest is really scary, potentially. Yeah, um, definitely. So that was sort of a, like, the idea was just sort of create a fist because the, obje- the victory condition is um, the game ends immediately at the end of any round in which one faction has lost more than half of its models. Yeah. And then whether or not you get a minor victory or a major victory is based on whether or not you've killed the general as mm. part of one of those things. So it's actually, it could be over really quickly. Like I have five models. Um, four of them are a one wound behind a six up save. Mm. I can lose three of them very quickly, which point the game is just over. Right? Yeah. So it's always going to be a very fast game. Yes. Um, but, and we ended up with this interesting scenario where I had, um, my, Sword Priest and two Reavers on together near some ruins mm. and then uh, set up two other Reavers. So they were nine inches away from, in one case, a Dryad and in another case, a Wanderer, mm. hoping to score some easy kills with the shouty charging men. Yes, quite reasonable. Um, I counter deployed a little bit so that I put my other Dryad with that Dryad and <clears throat> formed a two on one situation in that entire quadrant. And dryads and elves are fast. Dryads can move seven inches, which is way faster than I'm used to with Stormgast. And elves can move six as well. So they they were within kind of striking distance of both that individual, and also they could potentially get into combat with the the fist you'd created in that that quadrant. Yeah, and the branch which was actually pretty close to my slot priest right from the start of the game. Yeah, so I um got into a phase where I realised I hadn't deployed my branch, which I still had some options left, and I didn't want her to be totally RNG. Like I wanted to make a choice about where she was going. And obviously I didn't roll to get a choice, but I decided that actually putting her behind you, like my most efficient combat unit, she's got a brilliant spell, especially in skirmish. Um putting her behind you within that range would cause more dilemma. Make you make more decisions, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so that's how I ended up. I was very, very scattered all over the board, and you were more focused on one quadrant. Yeah, with a couple two, of two outliers. rogue guys. Yeah, yeah, a couple of rogue guys. Um, and so I won the first turn. Uh, well, I, I, no, I, I finished setting up first, which is based on a roll off. Yes. So um, I chose to go first because I wanted to get stuff done. One thing about this is that um, because this scenario is supposed to be that the sun has just started to rise and the mm-hmm. armies are both already tangled with each other before the battle begins. Um, there's a few scenarios like this in both uh, AOS open war cards and 40k open war cards where l- the ranges of all ranged weapons and spells is limited to 12 inches for the first turn, 18 inches for the second turn, and then unlimited, well, back to their normal range after that. Yeah. To reflect like the sun coming up. Sure. And so beginning of this turn, um, your branch, which brings the first turn, your branch, which was at a range of my, uh, sort of priests r- rituals mm. so sort of priest isn't uh corn hates wizards so he can dispel magic he can't cast magic what he does have is a a ritual mechanic which is kind of interesting where it's a bit like the uh lord relictor's prayers where you have two spells to choose from one forces your enemy to run towards you which is pretty cool for corn yeah the other does d6 mortal wounds which <laughs> is kind of nuts like i'm used to this from a each point of view um, D6 Mortal Wounds is, there's only two spells I've got that do it. 
Uh, one is an eight, a casting roll of an eight. Yeah. And the other is a casting roll of a nine. So they're pretty hard to cast without destiny dice. Like thinking of it with my other hat on. And this would be like four plus. This right? is a four up. Yeah. Uh, and if the slaughter priest kills something in a previous turn, he gets plus one to that roll. So it's a three mm-hmm. up. Yeah. But then if he rolls a one, if he ever rolls a one, however, he takes D3 mortal wounds because Corn just says like, no, yeah, okay. basically. There you go. That's the trade off. Which means that if he kills something, he's safe because he can never roll a one. Sure. So oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so that's cool. that is a kind of nice thing. Basically mm-hmm. it's a really lovely mechanic. It kind of encourages you to get stuck in always be getting stuck in. Mm. Um, and so, uh, so I decided, um, to move my, you know, fist of, of warriors towards the branch witch because killing her is a big deal if I yeah, can do it. Sure. Um, meanwhile, I have my two other reavers to worry about. So one of them, uh, well, you know, I can give them their, um, their names from, uh, Shadespire because that's who they were. So Targor on the left flank just runs because, um, blood reavers can run six inches. So, when they're nine inches, that's basically a guaranteed charge yeah. short of snake eyes on the charge roll. So he just runs straight at the lone wanderer in front of him. I'm pretty sure that's a kill. Um, on the other side, Carsus, who is the one that I had deployed opposite the dryad, um, suddenly found himself facing two dryads because you reinforced that particular part of it. Yeah. So I thought he can't stay here. He needs to join the fist basically. Like there's no point charging him in and then losing him. Hmm. Like, cause if I don't kill a dryad, then you're just going to murder him and get a free, free kill out of it. Mm. So I got him to run and rolled a six. So he's now just doing a full 12 inch move. Like he's he just fucking books it. Hell out of there. And I decided, you know what? I'm just going to, I can move so far that I'm just going to move directly over this crumbling terrain. Mm. Cause there is only a one in six chance that he dies. That's true. But guess what? Corn really doesn't like it when you back down from a fight. And so the first thing that happened in this game was Carsus <clears throat> ran over some ruins and then just fell down a really deep hole and was never <laughs> seen again. <laughs> Corn claimed his soul back. <laughs> yeah, exactly. For his cowardice. And that was that. That was just... him. That's one, one for the silver death. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. One point to Tom. They frightened. That was, that was my first act of that turn was just a man falls down a really deep hole and he's gone his, now. Frightened <laughs> a man to his death. Um... And then, uh, Targor completely whiffed all his attacks on your lone wanderer, mm. who likewise whiffed all his attacks in return. So those two are just sort of... They're just sort of scrambling around in the dark, aren't they? At this <laughs> yeah, point, exactly. Because the sun's slowly coming up. Not quite sure what's happening. Surprised so, each other. So your first turn opened with, predictably, you attempting to release the bees. Yeah. Um, the branch, which has an amazing spell. Uh, well, it's, I mean, it's, it's normal in AOS. It's fine. But it's amazing in the context of skirmish, and this is something to bear in mind with skirmish. It's not the most balanced thing. Mm. <laughs> you have to go into it expecting to get funny stories out of it. Don't go into it with like a match play attitude because a lot of the skills and abilities and shooting just scales madly with the way it works at that scale. Still really fun though. This thing, um, within nine inches, she releases uh, a swarm of spites, which are obviously bees for for us. Yeah, it's got to be bees. And uh, for each unit that she hits. Within that, uh, radius, she rolls the number of dice equivalent to the casting roll. And for every roll of six that she gets out of that, it deals a mortal wound to that, that thing. The thing is that units in skirmish count, every individual counts as a unit. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is designed for you to attack, you know, a unit would be like 10 skeletons and you'd roll 
10 dice, so you might get three sixes. Because you cast on a five, dice. right? Right, so you yeah, roll, like, maybe yeah. average out, you roll seven, seven dice. sure. And, and then maybe, one mortal wound. Maybe you kill two skeletons in a, yeah, a, a maybe, bunch of skeletons. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. And, but if you're rolling those seven dice for an individual, and they only have one wound, <laughs> then it becomes ridiculous. So she, anyway, she let this off, and um, I rolled. the nature of bees. It's the nature of bees. They fuck up individuals. <laughs> Apparently, uh, so she uh, she rolls five, just about gets it off. And but luckily, the slaughter priest has the ability scorn magic, mm. which gives him the ability to roll uh, uh, dispels, basically, even yeah. though he can't cast spells. And he aced it. He just, he just no. went no. He just bellows like, "Stop it!" <laughs> Court says no. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, that uh, that sputtered out. Uh, it was interesting because immediately, right? Like this has been the other way around for so long where mm. it's like I have the nonsense mortal wound cannon during right. hero phase and you have nothing you can do about it it was really nice to be in a situation where it's like that was actually a little game we played you know what I mean like yeah. there was stakes there and oh, you know what I mean there was, there was a roll off there we were both part of the phase and it was an interesting could have borne you know could have gone terribly for you if that had gone off as well and it was also nice to see corn dispel something yeah which is probably a rare thing corn was just like no fight me yeah, yeah fight <laughs> me hand to hand yeah um you did then shoot Targor in the face. Yeah, the two, uh, the two wanderers. One was in the forest, just where they belong. Um, and one was obviously in close combat. I believe the close combat one just shot him in the face, shot him in the face, just point blank, which is a very elf thing to do, really. Mm-hmm. Like they just sort of stumbled around. The elf got the footing and was the first to actually just draw an arrow and finish off poor, poor Targor. Yeah. Which, which put me in dangerous position because now between a big hole in the ground and one elf, I had lost two people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> two to the silver nerf. <laughs> yeah. Um, which meant that I was at this point only a single death from losing the game, mm. which is a thing. That was quick. So it was very important at this point that I won the roll off for the next turn. Yes. Which I did. So mm. that's good. Yeah. Um, and at this point, uh, cause you actually, so actually in that turn you had charged your branch witch in. She didn't do anything. Yeah. That was the time where you charged the branch witch into. One of the uh, weeks. Garrick, yeah. Basically. One of the, the mooks, basically. And, uh. Cause if you'd killed him that turn, the that game would have been ended. It. Yeah. It would have been it, yeah. Uh, you missed. And then they actually managed to hit you back reasonably mm. well, actually, those two reavers. Yeah, those reavers were, did have put in work in this game. They, they took a couple of wins off her, I'm sure. Yeah, they did. They, yeah. So, so that went well. Um, <coughs> then I did win the roll off the next turn. So that mm. was, that was sort of my way back into this, particularly because that sort of priest has a, uh, six, D6 mortal wound spell on a four up, which is mm, nuts, right? Yeah. Particularly amazing. because in the previous turn, the Reavers had managed to chip two wounds off the branch witch. Yeah. That's then a four up, two four ups in a row to kill her. Yes. And the way the, this works is the sort of priest, cause it's, it's all sort of blood magic. He just, uh, sets their blood on fire. Their blood begins to boil in their veins mm. and they just what annihilate then, it, right? Yeah. Whatever. Um, however, what did happen, is I rolled a one. <laughs> yeah. So the sort of priest set himself on fire. He did. He just stood there and went like, Oh, and, um, and he took two mortal wounds mm. by just for that. So I, if you remember a few months ago, the uh, story of Ariman, the yes. self immolating. Yeah. This is, very this similar. felt very similar theme, to me. Yes. Yeah. It's like whenever I play something that isn't like my demon army, mm. I melt myself for some yeah. reason. It did feel like corn punching you again for not just, uh, going in for the close combat kill there. As cause well. I, cause I denied about ca- trying to cast a spell to make you run at me. Yeah. Cause I thought that was more corn mm. and I didn't want a mortal wound spam you off the board, but then I did neither of those things. <laughs> mortal wound spamming myself. Well, um, so chaos break sometimes. Yeah. And then, um, but I was like, well, fine. So you still got four wounds left. The slaughter priest actually, does 
work in combat. Mm. Like he has uh one three attack weapon oh, yeah, and one D three attack weapon. Yeah. And I did manage to get the full three attacks on that weapon. So six attacks total. Um only one damage per attack, but good hit to wound. Mm. You know, really solid attack profile. Good odds. Whiffed absolutely everything. It all went I past. rolled four ones <laughs> in six rolls. Yeah, it went terribly. It went terribly. He did no damage ab- whatsoever mm. at all, even in the smallest amount. One lucky branch witch. And in return, the branch witch just killed people. Yeah, she, um, well, I don't think she did an enormous amount in close combat, but when it rolled around to my turn, she certainly. Oh, yeah. Yes, please to the bees. Set herself some more bees. <laughs> <laughs> That's what she does. It's only a five first casting roll. So she rolled a 10 for that. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I couldn't, that means it's 10 dice per individual. Nearby. But interestingly, the sort of priest was close enough to an arcane ruin to add True. one to his own dispel roll. And what did he roll, Chris? A 10. So he a nine. He, he rolled a nine, but plus, plus one. Plus one. 10. Yeah. But, but it turns out. We, we check the rules and it turns out that the spell does go through if it's sequel. You have to beat the roll on a dispel. Yep. Take that, corn. <laughs> Tried really hard. Stood near some ruins and everything. Yep. Uh, anyway, that went off and um, the bees ate one of uh, the cornites. Yeah, the, um, the sort of priest took two wounds from the bees. Right. But it wasn't enough to kill him. Not enough to kill him. Definitely, uh, you know, took the, all the flesh and skin off one of the other. Sake was eaten by bees. Sake was eaten by bees. In the manner of your favourite teammate in a Mass Effect 2. <laughs> <laughs> that is um, that is how the Sovereigneth secured their numerical victory. Uh, yeah, so basically you had you had one at this point. Like yes. the end, because your turn was the second turn of the round. Mm. So there wasn't going to be another turn for me. No. The question was, Stakes. if you can kill the Slaughter Priest, you get a major victory. And because this is That's a campaign, mm. that matters. Every little helps. Um, so... Uh, in close combat, the branch witch tried to hack down the general, tried to hack down the, um, sword priest and failed. She didn't do terribly well with her two attacks a turn with her scythe. But the dryad, uh. So we should mention the fucking insane, the world's <laughs> fastest dryad. The world's fastest dryad, uh, having witnessed, uh, a bloke fall down a hole running away from it, uh, decided, uh, moved his seven inches and rolled Fucking 12. Roll two sixes <laughs> two on your charge. Two sixes to go across. And he needed so two sixes. a tree, a living tree, <laughs> went, charged 19 inches in a single time. It was absurd. <laughs> <laughs> and it, yeah, it, it, a roll of 11, not enough. Had to be the double six. Always worth, always worth uh, in AOS, rolling those dice for those charges if you, if they're... It's know. always worth rolling a double six. It's always worth, <laughs> just in case, you never know. And uh, it might help. Anyway, got to combat. Um, and unfortunately the dryad, could not do enough. Well, what happened was, because the branch witch um, managed to veil her attacks at the Slaughter Priest, wasn't able to kill him. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of torn between, like, the branch witch still had four health left, and I really wanted to kill her. Yeah. But chances are I'm not doing that. Whereas if the Dryad kills my Slaughter Priest, you win a major victory for the scenario. So the Slaughter Priest just laid into the Dryad instead. Yes. And I like to think about the fact that, so obviously the Dryad is moving extremely quickly. Like, you know, this is the fastest tree you've ever seen. Um, but the Slaughter Priest is a man. I think this is, if this becomes a sort of secondary rivalry for our forces, like we have the Zeech versus Stormcast, but also Corn versus Sylvaneth, it's kind of nice because I've made a big load of dudes with like flaming axes, which are two things that trees really don't like. Very true. Yeah. <laughs> Fire and axes. Oh, yeah, you would have thought, you would have thought he'd be so keen to get that close to a combination like yeah. that. Yeah. But nonetheless, that big flaming blade. Uh, just bisected that tree person yep. in half. Um, and that meant that you had no one else to activate. Yep. So that was basically game at that point. That was game. A minor victory to you. Yes. 
what was really interesting about this and the interesting thing about skirmish is so after the fact we were all on the rewards table you got eight points for a minor victory and i got six points for a loss which yeah. is points we can add to our next armies as we continue this adventure um you rolled on the rewards table and got a healing potion that will allow you to heal like d3 mortal wounds yeah. in the next game which is pretty handy. very good for my general yeah yeah but i rolled on the rewards table and managed to get extra uh d3 extra points mm. and then rolled a three so i got two extra points Hooray. so we both got eight points out of that game Everybody so it remain wins. balanced apart from the fact that you get some extra healing yes which is nice um and then you get into the interesting sort of list building it's like do you wait and not spend those points on new units uh, to try and get a bigger unit further down the line. Do you spend them to get your kind of numbers up? And this is why skirmish is really fun. And actually, it goes by so fast. You could play several games in an afternoon if you wanted to, and actually get significant progress going. Yeah, we we chose to break play Shadespire because Indeed. obviously, but love Shadespire. Yeah. But uh, but that's that's set up now. That's a nice little kind of another kickoff point for a story for us. Yep, the bees the bees saga the bees. begins. Yeah, that spell is absurd in Skirmish. Um, but then the last time we played Skirmish, um, I was playing the Stormcast, and they are kind of broken in Skirmish. They're ridiculous. Like, having so many wounds behind so many saves. I took a long strike, which is just... Yeah. <laughs> nothing can really fight that in Skirmish. <laughs> just a man with a bazooka. Yeah, just a, yeah, the equivalent, for sure. Uh, but yeah, it's good, uh, if not balanced. <laughs> We've also played a bunch of, uh, of Shades by We've we played have. a lot of Shades by since we recorded our Shades by special. Yeah, it's fantastic. And learned a lot about the game. We made some pretty howling rules errors. Although, actually, the more um, the more Shades by I've played and the more I've played talk to other people who are just getting into shades by or people who don't play a lot of warhammer everyone makes howling rules interpretation errors with shades by yeah it's really worth being diligent about it yeah for sure so our first thing was believing you can only have one upgrade per character that's not true not true at all uh we, we're talking to um obviously crit and crowbar regular tom francis hmm. who played the game with crit and crowbar regular guest alex Wilcher, where they believed that every extra success you got on an attack gave you extra damage mm. so suddenly the corn blood reavers are one-shotting Insane, yeah that's not how that works no so yeah and even today playing and we're both relatively experienced with it now making just big errors like forgetting i'd given a guy plus one wound and mm. not removing him from the board there's some interesting kind of i mean removing him when i shouldn't have done yeah which is <laughs> it's very bad for stormcast to re- <laughs> remove the general severin steelheart uh, we're also just running into some interesting kind of sequence questions with some of the card interactions uh yeah which uh definitely a matter for some faqs in future i think so i mean we'll, we'll go for the blow by blow for storm uh, for shades by games because it's kind of short of making a video it's not necessarily yeah. how that works but um like it's been really interesting because like we played two games today i won one you won one i, I was running the stormcast basically because i just finished painting them and i wanted to use them mm. against your skeletons um and you scored a victory with skeletons which has been First victory a long time skeletons long yeah. time coming um but also the great thing about that is it felt like the first two rounds of a best of three yeah but we have time we should totally just play the third round but anyway there's mm. um you know what i mean like that felt like yeah it was a proper contest yeah i felt like i understood the game a lot better i understood my warband a lot better than i have done previously even if my deck isn't quite there yet so that's always the interesting thing. You're always manicuring your deck when you... Yeah, it feels it. like you need those right objectives early on. You can swing yeah. it that way. Yeah. Yeah, like, I almost, I'm almost at a position now where I kind of want to do another Shades Fire special, mm. like, at some point. I'll get that. There's, like... Because um, it does sit slightly to the side of the stuff we typically discuss on this podcast, but holy shit, it's really good. Mm. Really enjoying it. Like, the, the key thing for me is that I feel like the real game... Like, there are a few things about it that um really work for me as a competitive game and and one of them is that you 
So in the first game we played today, I had a very good first turn of Stormcast. That's because I had drawn a really nice hand of initial opening objectives, which is obviously a little bit of luck. But it means that that shapes what... But it wasn't luck in terms of, like, I get instant points and I don't have to do anything. Hmm. It was luck in the terms of, like, oh, these three objective cards that I've just drawn describe a strategy that I can I can pull off with the right play, given the board state as it exists after we've set up the board at the start of the game. Yeah. And that means that the RNG aspect of it, the card drawing and the dice rolling aspect of it, is only in service to like a plan that I have to form on the fly. Mm. It's almost like the game kind of resolves itself. The the plans emerge and the strats emerge as the game is played rather than as you build your deck, if that makes sense. Yeah. You don't build your deck to win in a particular way. You build opportunities into your deck. I yes. Think. You build opportunities. That, yeah. That's what's key about it. And so I was talking to, so I went to my first X-Wing event in a, in a while over the weekend. I had a perfectly good time and I, I really love playing that game in Bristol where mm. the community is really nice and where, um, I go there for the people more than the game now. Uh, because I stand by a lot of my issues with X-Wing, a game I wish was better. Yeah. Um, because I really feel like they've let the side down with, with some big things in the game. And it's really struggling under the weight of power creep and all these different things. And Shadespire isn't immune to that. And obviously the time will tell, mm. but there are so many more protections built into it as, as a game that X-Wing doesn't have. And indeed that I think most fantasy flight games don't have. And this is a really interesting problem and a really interesting thing that I didn't think was something that could be solved until I think Shadespire has made big strides towards solving it, which is that in a, um, so most fantasy flight games, and I would include Netrunner in this, um, are played either best of one or best of two. Best of two being a weird, weird formula. Um, and most of those games have what I would call a big, uh, or to put it in the words of a friend who I was talking to about this the other day, a really good diversity of builds in terms of lots of different ways of building your faction and your army. Mm. But within those builds, basically no variation of strategy. So you've built in a particular way. That means you have an optimal game plan for that build, right? Uh, does that make sense? So yes. like, yeah, like it's not going to do much else. Basically. Yeah. It does this thing. I yeah. built it to do this thing and this is ideal. Um, and obviously executing that against different opponents might mean slightly different things, but broadly speaking, it's victory condition looks the same. Um, and what that means is if the game is perfectly balanced, it's fine. If the game is, however, in any way matchup dependent, then that introduces an element of, pretty much random chance to the kinds of things that succeed over the course of a long tournament. And this was the thing that ultimately um, put me off Event X-Wing. And Event X-Wing is clearly not doing badly. Uh, we uh, I haven't talked about X-Wing much on this podcast recently, but like um, the tickets for next year's system opens, which is like one of the national tournament tracks. I did uh, one of the best events I've ever done was the first UK system open. Um, went on sale last week. And 400 tickets sold in like an evening, mm. like they got, and they'd never sold out before. So clearly the game is doing really well. Um, which is kind of strange because I think it's never been weaker, but like there's, you know, um, th- you know, it's a, nonetheless, that's the thing. You get these big events, but when you're at one of those big events, because of the type of game X-Wing is, it means that your odds of winning are uncomfortably matchup based. Unless you are winning, unless you are playing, unless you are fully taking advantage of, the best list archetypes and the best lists, assuming that you are the sort of person who shows up with the thing you like flying, right? 
you can't, it's kind of competitive. Hmm. It's kind of, but it's not spiky in the way that, or, or super reliable in the way that the stuff that tends to sit at the top of the power creep curve tends to be. Odds are you're going to have some good matchups that are very, very good for you. And some matchups that are very, 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 very bad for you. Hmm. And therefore your progress through a long day of tournaments, six games of, you know, X-Wing as part of a huge Swiss tournament structure means that, uh, your matchup is uncomfortably important, right? You will find games that you can't win realistically because hmm. like short of your opponent making a big mistake or, you know, and that, that's decided the moment you, pull out your printout of your list and show it to your opponent. It's not decided at all by what happens in the game, really. Like, beyond a dice miracle or your opponent forgetting how to play a list that by this point they've probably played for like four or five rounds of a tournament, like, it's not going to happen. And that is an uncomfortably common occurrence with X-Wing, and it's one of the reasons I moved away from the game, because it just feels like it pushes you towards the stuff that feels abusive and it feels like a negative player experience, like the really power gamey stuff at the top. Mm. Um, because you have the choice between that stuff or just sometimes being in a position where like realistically you can't win this. And that sucks. Basically what I really like about shades by is a, the sort of the fact that you pull your objectives on the fly, the fact that you're building a deck to govern what your miniatures want to achieve and what they can achieve means that there's an element of strategy construction, construction on the fly. Hmm. Some of the most interesting decisions in shades by are like, do you mulligan your first hand? based on the first turn, the optimal first round, all this right. stuff. Yes. Right. Secondly, it's designed to be played best of three. So if you, if you get that real bad hand on that first game or, or it just doesn't work out, like I got a really great hand on our first game today, what mm. could have been a best of three? Uh, I can't guarantee that happening every time. It's not just, in, it's not enough to do it once. Even if you build your entire list around some crazy trick, even if that phenomena does come into the game later with your upgrade cards, the best of three structure will always in some way mitigate against it. Because if you, if they released some wildly overpowered objective card or something, (laughs) I don't, can't see them doing it, but you know, if it did happen in a best of three, there's no guarantee you're going to draw it at the right time twice, Mm. which is what you need to do to win a best of three. And also there are many ways to shut those things down. Like the big objective cards in shades bar are very situational. And in fact, like, uh, if you know that that exists in an opponent's deck, you know how to shut that down. And often it's very easy to shut them down if they are like the five, the big five point objective cards are very easy to shut down if you know they're actually in the play. Yeah, yeah. If they're in the mix. So for example, one for the undead is to own every objective on the board. And as if the enemy has anyone on the board, they have every chance of easily stopping that if they think that that might be what the opponent's going for. Mm. Um, so the, there's a lot of kind of denial play that you can do in Shadespire to actually shut down those objectives once you know that they're there. And the, the best of three gives you the chance to scan your opponent's deck and see what they've got and see what their kind of play style is and then react to it and adapt to it in your next next game. What was really interesting about our games today is like we had some bizarre dice. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Right? I won every single turn roll off mm. in both games. And then I won seemingly almost every... Defense uh, roll. Defense roll. Yeah, you had, the, you had these, but... these, these crazy, like, matrix skeletons that <laughs> yeah. can't be hit. Like, right. I couldn't kill a skeleton. Yeah. I could charge a stormcast in a skeleton and I just wouldn't hit it. Yeah. Like, you'd either roll an evade to match or cr- my attack on or a crit when you needed yeah. it. Like, and, but weirdly, that was kind of bad for both of us. Mm, for sure. If they couldn't die, you couldn't bring them back. They can't be inspired. And if I couldn't kill them, then suddenly I'm in a bog down. And yeah. Like, yeah. And, um, 
And that was consistent across both the game that I won and the game that I lost. Mm. And that was really interesting. Like, there was no point in those games where I felt like the R... It's weird that almost combining two different kinds of RNG negates <laughs> the effect of RNG. <laughs> I think there are bigger things at play. Like we said in the, the in, in the, in the standalone pod, I think the fact that damage is a flat quantity in Shadespire, mm. it's your what's printed on the card plus any upgrades and that's it. Yeah. Makes a, a massive difference hmm. knowing uh, what can kill you or can't kill you in one yeah, is huge in, across three rounds it's just like that kind of transparency is just so much better um also the game uh again this is sort of stuff that's kind of percolated the top of my brain through conversations about x-wing recently um and i find those two a really fascinating combination because hmm. when i started playing x-wing it felt like i'd never played a, and i there's so much I love about that game. I just wish it was healthier. Mm. And like, um, when I started playing it, I felt like I'd never played a tabletop war game that elegant mm. you know, compared to a Warhammer, especially as it was a couple of years ago when I was starting up with X-Wing. Um, the relatively smaller number of models, the, 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 the real kind of mechanical skill of X-Wing was super attractive yeah. and really cool. And it still is when it's at its purest. The kind of spatial control and actually moving your things. And feeling like your precisely. actions in, influence your dice modification, which yeah. is, you know, a very Shadespirean kind of thing, mm. right? That, you know, I, I, I think Shadespire has been partially inspired by X-Wing, right? The notion that your kind of spatial play should inform your dice odds is something that Shadespire uses. Mm. The problem is X-Wing has now got years and years and years of uh, upgrade packs and extra cards and bolt-ons that have steadily eroded the importance of that. Yeah. So imagine if there was like an upgrade for a, a really easy to achieve upgrade for Shades by for a Shades by character, which is just like from now on, your character always counts as having an assist. It doesn't matter if they actually have an assist. Hmm. And then it just sort of removed the assist mechanic from the game. Yeah. That would be, I, I would say the equivalent of what's happened to X-Wing. Okay. Um, and the, um, but what I really love about like, that feeling is when the dice swing against you, you go like, well, I did put myself in that position, right? I knew this was a risk when I did it and I knew how much damage I could stand to take by exposing myself to this risk. So I own that decision at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, like uh, today when I charged the harvester who you'd massively tooled up with, with Severin and on average, I should expect to come out on top of that. But yeah. I didn't. Mm. And that, you know, I knew what I was doing. Like I, and I knew how badly it could go if it didn't happen. Hmm. And it doesn't mean that you didn't have to position yourself properly because you had to be in a good position to threaten me, to force my hand for me to take a gamble on the dice and so on. And all yeah, these different yeah. things factor in. It's, it's so cool. It was cool. Cause I'd placed Frostfall to stop you from charging a different character. So the harvester was the only one you could charge and he was the only harvester wasn't inspired, I believe. And the other one was, so it's almost like there's something you could do to guide the opponent into the targets that you want to hit. You know, it's, it's, it's really, really cool. I think you said it really well when we did the chase by special, which was that you feel like you're playing me, not mm. the dice, which is, and unlike and and vice versa, yeah. which that's, that's the thing, mm. right? Like that's when it really matters, and that's what's super cool about it. I think that's the, it, it. Does feel like the benefit of it just being such a new game that it gets yeah. to be that pure, right? Even with the you know, I was playing with the first expansion warband. And I think the undead are really cool, interesting warband that do different things to the others, and are difficult and, and a unique challenge in their own way, to, both to face and to play with. And like, maybe we should just kind of expect these this sort of game to be good for a year. <laughs> Yeah, 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 maybe you're right. Like, we'll, we'll see what the future brings. I think, I really hope that the success of Age of Sigmar and Games Workshop other projects protect this. Mm. Because, so, 
the thing about X-Wing is X-Wing doesn't turn people into players of other fantasy flight games. I mean, maybe people pick up a bit of Imperial Assault or mm. Star Wars Armada or something like that. But the pieces aren't transferable, right? Like, it doesn't upsell quite the same way. Like, upselling that game, the way its survival works, is always through a bigger, better, newer thing. And also, simply by virtue of the way that its upgrade mechanic works, where any expansion pack you get comes with cars that can be used for any ship in the game, Yeah, mean that you're always being pushed to get a new thing that mm-hmm. fundamentally changes how the game works. And so, you know, maybe to take some of the kind of... And I know I've, I've, I've dragged the game a bit recently, but like that has affected things quite a lot, right? Like the business model has actively acted to its detriment because yeah. of course there is an incentive to, for power creep. Like that's just the way it goes. Right. And like, it goes from like, you know, I went through the, my, the honeymoon period of being excited whenever a new expansion would be revealed. And you go like, Oh my God, you can do this now mm. to now being in this position where I see the preview articles come out. My eyes kind of roll because it's kind of like an excited article about a mechanic that we've removed. Right. So it'll be like, it'll be like, you know, we introduced the ability to do a crazy double move with a ship, but in order to do it, you've got to disable your weapons. What if we release a ship that could do that, but not disable its weapons? <laughs> and it's like, you know what I mean? It's like, all you've done is kind of like set up the stakes and then removed them. Hmm. And that's, nah. Anyway, I don't know about asking too much. What I want to say is that like, Shadespire has, doesn't feel like it has the same incentives to power creep that X-Wing does. And that makes me really happy. Yeah. I guess it depends how much scope there is for that type of inve- uh, rules invention within that format. Yeah. So um, you expect the warbands to have their own sort of deal to actually be worth anything. So, uh, I mean, the sc- when the Skaven come out, I kind of expect them to have some sort of enemy backfield attack profile mm. uh, abilities because simply because they've said that um, Skaven will be a challenge for sort of more turtly warbands that like to sit back, like your Stormcasts, who could back into their own territory and score. The Skaven will be a problem for them. And to me, that implies the ability to move into the enemy territory in unusual ways. Yeah. So that's going to be their thing. And that will be a huge game changing moment. If that is the case, because that means that every warband fighting, fighting Skaven has to think differently about how to position. But then how many times can you release a warband that does that before it starts to create, you know, bad situations in the game for people? Yeah. And it's about the, it's about the possibility space within that design with, within those hex grids, you know, within the actual limits of the rule set and how far does it stretch before it breaks really, or before it, you know, starts to fail. Yeah. It'd be interesting because apparently this, the first six, so these six shades by warbands were mm. all tested with each other. So they were conceived together. Yeah. They were conceived together. Which so good, they're being sign. released at different times. Sorry, eight, right. It's eight warbands, right? right? So it's mm. the two, the two stormcast warbands, the two corn warbands, uh, orcs, skeletons, Skaven, and fire slayers. Mm. We're all kind of conceived together because they are the shades by set. Remember, we're going to, we're never going to get past this, but the game isn't called shades by. <laughs> right. It's, it's called, called underworlds. Under- Correct. And shades by is the first card set. Yes. Uh, which is why on every Shades by a card, it has the Shades by a logo, which is different from the Underworlds logo and mm. the number. Yep. And like any card game, that's because it's Shades by a card one, two, eight. Yep. And I fully anticipate that the next game will be, you know, Warhammer Underworlds. A different place. You know, M- McDonald's or whatever. You know. <laughs> and it will have a different logo on it and a different set of cards. Warhammer Underworlds, Bone Zone. Bone Zone. More skeletons. That's what I want. <laughs> the bone zone. Yeah, exactly. The bone tone zone. Uh, uh yeah, it's, yeah, it's, would they put all the rest of the bin though? That's the thing. Like, no, I think, I suspect they'll come with. Yeah. But it'll be like, that maybe gives some interesting kind of room because you could then have, so you could have something like, uh, a new set of boards 
that come with the game. Mm. And maybe those boards have a feature on them that is new. Yeah. And all the factions have to deal with it. Mm. Like, but the bigger thing is that, like, if there's a finite room to grow, it doesn't feel like there's a pressure on Shadespire to keep growing indefinitely. If, for example, if it remains popular enough to sustain the sale of organized play kits, which is starting in January, where yeah. essentially shops, game shops can subscribe to uh, receive tournament kits to help prize support. Mm. Like, so acrylic tokens and special new cards and things like that. Alternate art cards. Yeah. Very much out of the fantasy flat playbook. If that can be a source of income for Games Workshop and kind of support the game mm. and continue to drive interest. And if it continued to kind of continues to kind of convert people into AOS or 40k players or simply get them into a Games Workshop store every now and then, mm. then those are all good things about supporting the, you know, reasons to support the game above and beyond selling a new product to the people who like it. And that's really appealing. Like, and that's really, well, that's really promising because it's something that every competitive game needs. I feel this way about free to play games, yeah. right? Like if you're talking about free to play video games, particularly competitive games, one of the things to look at is do the developers have an incentive within the game design to sell me things that affect the game design? Mm. And Shadespire is as close as I've seen a kind of limited card game model game come to no to that question. Because it could probably achieve its goals business-wise simply by being a the widest point of the Warhammer funnel, <laughs> right? Lovely. Which God knows we're jammed well up in. <laughs> yeah, we're deep in that funnel. Uh, but yeah, sorry. But yeah, no. I mean, like, have you? Because I know that you've you've had a, a bit of a time getting a victory out of them skeletons. Yeah. That seems like does that has that felt like a balance thing to you, or has it felt like a, a learning thing? I'm interested about how. That it's definitely a learning thing. Um, it's definitely learning to expect to be behind and to come from behind with skeletons all the time. And uh, there's an interesting balance between learning how their heroes work, especially. So they've got four kind of main heroes and three kind of chaff characters. And those heroes are very specifically good at certain things. Um, and you know that, so for example, if you're playing Stormcast, if you've got the Harvester, he's the guy with the Scythe who attacks everyone adjacent to him in a single attack. You could put Cleave on him, which is amazing against anything with armor, so anything that's rolling shields. So Stormcast and Orcs, if you can cycle through your deck to get that Cleave on the Harvester, then that is a huge deal. And just learning sort of what your characters can do and what mm. they're, they're really good at. And then suddenly the Harvester is an amazing model because the Harvester is amazing against Corn and is amazing against Other Undead because of his ability to attack a lot of different models in one go. And if you've got that one card in your deck and you know it's lurking in there, then also the Harvester is amazing against Stormcast and Orcs as well. And it's kind of suddenly that character becomes an MVP, like a, a guy who can yeah, yeah. You know, adapt and to any Warland. Yeah, and he's always going to come back and he's always going to be a force to be, you know, something to worry about. And it's, it's, it's learning how to get the undead moving as well because they're very, very slow. They get faster as they inspire, but also they've got some very cool cards that let them move faster speeds and some cool upgrades that let you move more of them in a, in a turn. They're just a very, a very interesting, weird warband to use, I think. Um, but yeah, no, I've certainly not felt that it's been like R&D that's been hold, holding me back at all. It's been all about understanding my warband's capabilities, understanding how decks work, kind of manicuring the deck, kind of mm. adding to it and taking out, learning which objectives are scorable generally for my the, my yeah, playstyle. Yeah. It's been all learning stuff. It's all been like gameplay, like playing the game wisdom. It's, it's not been like, oh, I've been screwed by dice or whatever. How, from an experiential point of view, was it like, because I'm interested in this because it's like, because it's not the warband I played, but also like, when you're learning a game for the first time, if you lose with something over and over and over again, mm. the temptation is obviously to do something else. Right? Yeah, but I've not felt that at all. Like, I don't mind losing Chase Bar at all. Um, because A, I always learn something from it. And B, it's 
20 minutes, like half an hour. I, I don't mind losing it. It's, it's when it's hours and I've like that you've had to think about it for ages and try and, you know, put loads of effort into it. But it feels like there's just less at stake. There's just my time at stake, frankly. So I get less annoyed that I've wasted my time if I've somehow lost. Mm. Um, and so just be able to play through it and understanding why I've lost. Like Shades Bar is so clear. It feels as though I've always understood, understood what's gone wrong in a play, in a game for me. And it's very clear, like, what wrong moves I've made, it feels. So I've, I never feel screwed by it in that way. I never feel that bad RNG burn. I always, yeah. as, as long as I feel as, a, as though I'm in control and I'm, I'm responsible <clears> somehow, <throat> then I'm quite happy to lose games. And again, the best of three thing really helps with that. Yeah, like, for sure, I actually yeah. probably recommend that if you have the time, play it as a best of three game mm. because it kind of really works that way. Yeah. Like, you know, we played the two games today and we each won one. Yeah. And that sets up a really interesting final. Yeah game especially because the way it played out you know and knowing that how you can score quite early and how i can you know how i can score and suddenly in that final game like a lot of it's gonna be that denial and it's kind of hot you know yeah and by the third game in a best of three if you're playing it in a sort of tournament setting you now have the best possible read on your opponent's deck that you're going to get yeah for sure so you start with kind of the the exploratory first game Mm. and then the you know almost open hand finale Mm. it's a really cool arc yeah it's nice really cool Mm. What a good game they've made. It's kind of, is it like, not weird to you that Games Workshop have made it? Like, I've not really ever thought of them as rules. No, it's true. I Rule think it's people. because, maybe it's because, I think often Games Workshop design games with a kind of hobbyist storytelling, have a laugh mindset. Yeah. And maybe Shades Bar is one of the, is the first time they've really sat down and gone, okay, let's make something really competitive that is one on one and it's got to be sharp. And maybe mm. that's just a different mindset for them. It's maybe. interesting because like, yeah, because all of the war games, the big war games, serve a double role of both tournament play but also telling a story with your models mm. and those things aren't 100 percent compatible mm. um equally something like blood bowl which is a pretty competitive game has this m- kind of wacky streak that it can't quite get away from it's because it's so dicey <laughs> that fundamentally undermines it as a competitive so dicey, game. i know people yeah. i know i know people who would disagree with that who yeah, would say yeah. that like like top level competitive blood bowl is like you know, tournament hypermaths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For geniuses, which it probably is. Yeah. But the fact is, it is a game where you can fall over because you ran one square too far. <laughs> yeah. And then you die forever in the campaign. <laughs> like, the potential for swing is so big that, like, and that stems, I think you're right, from that Games Workshop attitude of, like, if this is funny, it's worth including. Mm. And there's not a lot, there's nothing in Chase Bio which is, like, that betrays that tendency to be no. like, and if you roll three sixes, everyone dies. <laughs> yeah. Flip the board over. Yeah, yeah. That's your new board. You know, it's the sort of wacky stuff that you'd see in other games. Just, it feels, it feels tighter, but I think, I don't see that as being like, uh, I don't say that as saying that the other games are poorly designed. They're just designed for a different type of experience mm. than Shades Buyer is. And it's cool to see that, um, Games Watch does have designers that could produce something like Shades Buyer. You know, they've got that that talent there yeah 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 it's, it's really interesting watching it start to gain traction with people who would normally not would dismiss games workshop stuff as yeah not as competitive yeah yeah because of those reasons i suppose yeah yeah good game good good games should we do some questions let's do some questions before we do some questions hmm. i want to ask a question oh, to wait. our audience <sighs> listeners friends roll reversal <gasps> roll this is classic Zinc. There's a joke there. I don't... Never mind. So, um, we are thinking about doing some kind of Miniatures Monthly event. This has been mentioned on the Role Models Discord, on the Crank Crowbar Discord. Uh, but 
we would like to make it an actual thing. However, to figure out what kind of thing this should be, we could use an indication of your interest. So if you would be interested in meeting up with people with a similar attitude towards tabletop miniatures war games <laughs> at some point in 2018, ideally in the first half of 2018, I think, <laughs> then please send us an email, miniatures at crankandcrowbar.com, because that will let us kind of gauge the right thing to do. So obviously there are certain considerations like game systems and so on. Uh, if it was going to be a Warhammer centric event, then it would maybe make sense to look at venues like Warhammer World. Hmm. However, I'm open to the idea that maybe this is something people want to play some X-Wing at or bring some other games or do some pen and paper or anything really. Yeah. So with that in mind, I want to make sure that we kind of scale it and scope it and so on appropriately could be that a venue like firestorm in cardiff which i'm a big fan of could be a good fit for this yeah that'd be awesome. but we've got a really rad community growing up and there's a lot of people who have gotten back into this hobby and might appreciate a slightly more relaxed hangout style event yeah so if it's the kind of thing you'd be interested in it's the kind of thing we're thinking about doing so just let us know that's my question to the listeners oh that's nice lovely wouldn't that be good that'd be exciting play some shades by play some warhammer I can just bring all of my zinch and everyone can come and beat me up. <laughs> <laughs> so we teach just like they heard on the radio. <laughs> <laughs> so we can teach me bolt action. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, people try different systems. Anyway, 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 that's for next year, but we want to get the ball rolling. So just email us if that's something you're interested in. In terms of emails from people from the internet, first one comes from Fienia, who has asked a question to every single episode. And I think now, who writes, Hi, Tiny People Pushes. This month I ask of you, is there another hobby that has so many different ways to directly engage in it? I was recently quite astounded by the amount of people on our lovely Discord who collect and paint the miniatures without ever really wanting to play the games. Equally, there are lots of people who collect and play without ever really caring about the painting side. Even within playing the actual games, there are people that take it deadly seriously, competitive tournament players, folks who are happy to play anywhere at all, those who want to play friendly story-driven games, folks who only want to play people they're already friends with, club games, home games... And it struck me that people get so many different things out of this hobby. Do you think this is analogous to other hobbies, or is this one in particular one that allows such a variety of interactions? Your pod continues to be beautiful as always. <laughs> Pete slash Fienia. I reckon that most enduring hobbies have multiple facets to them, and that's yeah. why they are so so popular. Like even something like fishing, for example, like um, people do it just to hang out with people that also fish and some people do it to get you know size of catch some people actually do it to get food <laughs> yes yeah. so many different facets to that one thing and so many different kind of ways of finessing and directing your hobby to catch certain types of fish and to go certain places and sometimes people use it as a travel opportunity just just that one single example that sprung into my mind just then has all those facets to it i think that um one of the things that defines a hobby is a social aspect of some description whether it is that you're a painter and that you love sharing your painting and kind of being part of the community in that way or whether you're playing a game i think there's always like the, the enduring hobbies tend to have a degree of kind of mm. social interaction somewhere along the way and a community aspect um and you know warhammer is exceptional at that both on the gaming side and on the painting side i think it's because i think this perception stems from the fact that for a lot of people particularly people in our in our circle but this is you know neither of us had very many like non-computer centric hobbies mm. other than this obviously there are sort of skills and things music and writing and drawing and other kind of things yeah. but in terms of like 
stuff mm. you would meet up with other people to do regularly. That's what kind of distinguishes it a bit for me. Like, that's what makes Warhammer and, and those type of hobbies feel different to something like drawing at home. Yeah. Where it feels well, like they're all hobbies, for sure. Well, the, the example I would give is like, like, you know, you're a musician, but you're not in a band. Yeah, that's, that's true. maybe the difference, right? Yeah, like yeah, you yeah. can play an instrument, you but can, you're not currently like... You could direct it to lots of different places. Yeah. Yeah, but you hadn't been doing that so this is fits in a different role yeah whereas like i think if, if your hobby for a long time has been computer games mm. then that multifaceted aspect of of any physical hobby can be surprising mm. because video games are not typically very good at offering you lots of different ways to engage with them there were examples like old school mmos used to do this yeah you can be a pvp or a role player or a raider or all these different things it does exist in some places but actually this feels like a very like more common to like physical hobbies sports and <laughs> those kinds of things yeah it's weird video, video games. games like you have to work much harder with games i think so for example i mean not to turn it into the great robot main podcast but um like you, uh, when i was first getting into games and stuff i would mess around with game engines like uh do like modding make left dead levels and that's kind of the equivalent on the game side but that's quite technical stuff and it's not just there as part of the package whereas with warhammer like the painting and the gaming side are presented very visibly by games workshop as being two sides of this thing that you can engage in and get into independently yeah yeah i suppose maybe that's still the case with things like minecraft hmm yeah, that's, that's spreads a nice Basically, gap, I don't it? think this is unique to our hobby. No, but, no, no. Um, but in a way that when you kind of figure that, you figure out why it is that this courage, this, this hobby encourages that view where others don't, mm. it's kind of illuminating about what things do and don't expect from you in terms yeah, of your that's true. engagement. Hmm. Hmm. The next question comes from Sam. He writes, Dear Minis Monthly, is it possible to make orcs slash orcs interesting? If so, how? Wow. <laughs> Sam. I think that's a kind of anti-orc statement that I don't personally agree with. I have no brook with this. Is that how the saying goes? No, bro- no, it isn't. But you brook no truck I brook with no it. Tr- <laughs> I brook, I brook no truck. You don't tone no bone with this, Tom. <laughs> tone no bone with this at all. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I like the orcs. I think if you were going to introduce any kind of layered, deeper lore to the orcs, it would ruin them a little bit. They're supposed to be the clowns, often. Uh, serious clowns. Deadly yeah, they're, clowns. They're, that's what they're sort it. of... I'm fascinated by the degree to which Games Workshop has kind of invented, inadvertently completely defined how orcs are perceived in like all media mm. all the time. Like, I wonder about this a lot, like when they were making the Lord of the Rings movies. Right. Did they re, they must have had Warhammer orcs at some point lodged in their brain, mm. which is almost the most interesting thing about them. Like, they're supposed to be like sentient fungal spores in 40k that are all inexplicably from south of the river. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, 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 it's true. Um, and so like, the notion that this notion of the orc is the kind of boisterous working class warrior of the mm. battlefield as mm. opposed to the haughty everyone else has some of its roots in Tolkien, but it's sort of an exuberant expression is kind of all Warhammer as far as I know. So, yeah, it's odd because you look at the, like the Uruks and the Urukai and um, Tolkien and they're very serious and very boring. Yeah. Whereas at least they're not boring. <laughs> it's very hard to do much with their, that sort of just purely devoted warrior class, isn't it? There's so many fascinating ideas. Like the notion that orcs have a kind of vast collective psychic potential. That's a, yeah, that's a really cool great little yeah, that's touch nice in idea. 40k. Yeah, I think there's, I think it might be like an Eldar report or something on like, why, why do their vehicles go faster when they paint them red? <laughs> you know, it's, it, which it's is like actually pure will in the game. It's just pure, like, it's almost as though that if there are loads of orcs in one place, just reality bends a little bit to them you know that it's that sheer force of will and yeah the notion um 
the emperor's still alive because enough orcs think he's alive. It's one of the best <laughs> ideas. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, there's, there's lots of stuff like that. I think AOS orcs, as we should get used to calling them, mm. um, don't feel like they've gotten quite a fair shake in the in the fiction yet because they are yeah. literally just a force of destruction. I mean, obviously they're from Grand Alliance destruction. Yeah, but like they're more like a sort of you know a meteorological event than a faction really yeah. they just sort of show up shout a lot roll over everybody and then off they go again i think they tend to be like that in 40k with the exception of one feud between and i can't remember the names um imperial guard gaskell thracker and commissar yarrick yeah on armageddon where apparently that's like just a really well kind of fleshed out on both sides let's <laughs> punch uh, each other a lot punch each other a lot but with good reasons yeah with, with it's like you know a proper a great rivalry between those two characters um, uh, is it the Beast Arises series? Yes. Uh, uh, that's supposed to be brilliant. I've not read it for myself, but it's supposed to be brilliant for giving, putting more, uh, law behind the orcs, more kind of, more of a look into their society and how they work and how they usurp each other. And, you know, there's some of the more serious ways that they try and take over the galaxy. That's how you get your orc law. <laughs> Basically, orcs are kind of, like, I get, kind of get where sounds coming from because mm. they are, like, they can come across as generic because mm. it's such an obvious fantasy trope now, but yeah, I do feel like it's not totally Games Workshop's fault that Warhammer had such an influence on how orcs are, are in everything else. Mm. Like, you know, the entire Warcraft series oh, yeah. rips its orcs off from Warhammer yeah. basically wholesale. Mm. Like, there's no... You know, that's not Games Workshop's fault. Definitely. Our next question comes from Rich, who writes, Dear Tom and Chris, I've been listening to CNC's hot PC gaming takes from the start. Just wanted to say I'm enjoying and hearing your excellent pod voices applied to another one of my hobbies. I particularly identified with Chris's comments on falling away from X-Wing last episode. It's the game that got me back into wargaming and I made a lot of friends through it, but I've been unable to get on board with the competitive focus meta and repeated FAQs, meaning that one can no longer rely on card text alone. Luckily, 8th edition 40k has provided an excellent outlet for my pent-up desire to destroy tiny plastic warriors. And so to my question, I've been inspired by the narrative twist your games tend to take, but don't often play that way myself. How can I encourage narrative play with my friends? Thanks, Rich. Hmm. I think this is a really interesting one. Yeah. Because I think about this a bunch because... I really, really like pen and paper role playing. It's not coming to come on this podcast because it's not what this podcast is about. Hmm. But pen and paper role playing, there's like a glass, like break this glass for role playing thing that happens. When people start playing, they don't want to be in character. And obviously there are lots of degrees of being in character hmm. from like doing a voice to on one end to all the way onto the far end, which is simply describing my actions in the driest possible terms. Hmm. Um, while making jokes and none of those things are wrong per se every group is different and every situation is different but there's definitely a point where people feel comfortable telling stories with their friends versus not mm. you know what I mean people yeah. get over the slight embarrassment or the slight stage frightiness of just being in character and that's a kind of an interesting hump to get over and I feel like it's a hump you have to get over with war games as well mm. to be like I'm going to describe it in this way because it's important to me that this is evocative. Like, I tend to do this with X-Wing a lot as well. Yeah. Like, when I'm describing what a character's going to do, I try and be a bit more evocative about it, rather than, you know, just go like, 
and now I'm going to do this mechanical thing and this mechanical thing and this mechanical thing. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, I, it's weird because I've, like, I've played it for so long since I was a kid, and whenever we played it as a kid, we would describe what was actually happening, you know, what the translation of the dice actually looked like in, in fantasy battle terms. So it's always just been the part of the way I think about it. But maybe there is a kind of... Maybe it's quite daunting if you're not used to, like, coming up with your own stories or not used to especially expressing them in front of other people. Maybe that is, like, a tricky thing to do. But it's so collaborative. And it could be so light touch. It could just be, like, having a named character. And then as the as the battle unfolds, things will happen to that character and just kind of factor that in. I mean, this is often the way things happen. Yeah, it's funny. Like, I realised that over the course of us talking about our games that we've played, I've never actually said the names of my characters very much. Mm. Like, I always talk about the Sorcerer Lord, not mm. Irai Zaren, which is his actual name. Right. Like, that I've been using this entire time in my head. <laughs> right, yeah. But yeah, I'm actually saying... That. Or like, I mean, I've referred to the Gaunt Summoner as the Twilight Petitioner a few times, um, but I'd not really always referred to as the Gaunt Summoner. Yeah. Partly that's for clarity purposes, but also partly that's because there is, it does feel like there's a role play threshold that you cross. Mm. Like I know what the true name of my Lord of Change is, um, um, but it's also, it's really hard to say because <laughs> it's nine <laughs> syllables long for obvious mm. reasons. Um and but that's maybe something I I could try and do differently as we get back into it and sort of talk about the characters more because you've gotten really good at talking about like Ashbear and Tantris and the members of your thing. Yeah, they become. They, the more you talk about it, the more you kind of reinforce it, and that they become figures for both both players. I think. Yeah. Um, yes, exactly. So like, I think there's a there's a comfort thing that you have to kind of establish with your friends, mm. and that starts with one person being comfortable talking and and treating it in that way. Mm. Certainly, I think there are certain like wargaming environments, whether you're playing clubs and things, where people are a bit averse to this kind of thing. Yeah, sure. they kind of want to take it. Like, it's, it's strange, isn't it? There's a really strange attitude, which is like, oh, it's just it's, it's people who want to say, oh, it's just a game, and I'm not going to be nerdy about it, mm. while also playing Warhammer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you've already crossed the barrier by playing Warhammer. <laughs> exactly. I think that's once you've started putting some models down and rolling dice, you've got to embrace that as much as possible. And yeah, I mean, I understand some, a lot of people see it as kind of like battle chess and that's cool. Um, but if you're, if you're trying to introduce like a, a narrative element, then I think some like agreeing with the other person on the setting and why the two armies are there is just a really basic way to start setting up some context for the battle and like just having your main heroes, just main two or three heroes, just kind of keeping track of what they're doing and kind of attaching personalities to them a little bit as you're playing. I think mm. it's just a nice way to get things started without having to go full fucking Silmarillion on it and, you know, start... Never go full Silmarillion. <laughs> Never go full Silmarillion. Uh, but you know what I mean? Like, not actually, you don't have to go describe everything that's happening necessarily. Just a, a really light touch dice establishing some context developing a story letting the the dice do the work really yeah i agree i think also a big part of it is not going in with too many expectations of what that story is going to be yeah like, for sure. just yeah. allowing moments to emerge which leads to our next question actually like uh yeah having some ideas for characters having some ideas for themes that you like kind of mm. what you want what your army's about yeah. kind of thing yeah and sort of and also talking to i think one of the really big benefits of one of the big unacknowledged benefits of narrative play is that it takes the edge off the sometimes swingy nature of dice and this, you know, these mm. games can be extremely sort of random sometimes. And if you're playing for the story, then you can focus on that. Mm. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you definitely. can say like, Oh, isn't it kind of interesting? This has happened. <laughs> like, and encourage your opponent to see it in that way rather than be 
you know, sore about it or whatever, right? That yeah, is- narrative does cushion that quite nicely, actually, doesn't it? Like, if, I mean, if you go into a, a battle, obviously you're going to try and win, but if you lose, then if you lose spectacularly and you come out with the, an awesome anecdote, then that is what I'm doing its job. That's what it's designed yeah. to do a lot and, of the ways. And that is, the, that is the reason why, I mean, I know I'm quite a competitive person, but like, it's the reason why I can play X-Wing for a couple of years and be kind of done with it versus uh, despite competing relatively seriously versus playing Warhammer for better part of a year and a bit and really, really enjoy every moment of it despite losing. Well, I'll put it this way. I've won three games of age of Sigma ever <laughs> and being completely okay with that because it's just been this one big story mm. in my head and it's it's a matter of expectation and there is so many benefits to persuading people to see the game in that way yeah to worry less about it mm. yeah and that's you know and but i mean in terms of how you get your friends to see it that way i that is hard i think partly it's yeah to reiterate set an example mm. you, you someone has to commit first someone has to be the first person to commit if you suspect that other people secretly would like to take the narrative side of it a bit more fun mm. a bit more and have more fun with that then you have to be the first person to do it. Yeah. And that takes br- genuine bravery because mm. you have to put yourself out there a little bit. Mm. I mean, bizarrely, you have to expose yourself to ridicule in front of your Warhammer friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's not the toughest crowd. Um, well, I mean, apparently it shouldn't be, but nonetheless, right? Yeah, for but sure. I understand. Once you cross that thing and you've done that, then <laughs> you'll find out if people are really interested in that or not. Mm. And if they're not, they're not. Right? Yeah. You'll find out which friends that, you know, are down for a bit of the old role-playing town. <laughs> A lot of things that shouldn't rhyme and do in this episode. Our next, our next question is actually kind of related. If you want to bounce off to that, cool. uh, it is from Russell who writes, dear Chris and Tom, I had a great time at throne of skulls, which is a wonderful Warhammer sentence. <laughs> throne of skulls is an event. I believe a great time, uh, great time at the throne of skulls. The emphasis on sportsmanship made a huge difference. Uh, he presents the link to a write up, uh, while chatting to people there, the topic arose the most cinematic moment from past games, lone survivors of giant vehicle explosions and the like. While you've covered a lot of your games on the pod, do you have a favourite moment that stands out? Keep podding the good pod, Russell. It's a really good question because uh, the games, games of Warhammer generally and AOS do create these kind of crystallised, incredibly vivid anecdotal moments of, you know... It, uh, and perhaps the one for me is the Sorcerer, the, uh, the Chaos Sorcerer Lord going ham and decapitating Tantris when we were playing actually in the games workshop store in Bath. Um, because I don't know, it's, it's a, such a cool underdog story to that. And it's sort of tied into the rest of the campaign so mm. nicely. And it was also Tantris getting killed again, which is, is always hilarious. <laughs> it does keep happening. <laughs> it does keep happening. Um, uh, I love that moment. I think, oh, I mean, obviously we, the one we mentioned last episode, uh, the taking down the Lord of Change. Yeah, that was that's, still mine. That's the ultimate one. It's probably. still mine. It's because it was, I don't know, like we have to figure out what that castellant is called. Mm. Cause it's always a, Sigmar always renames people like a version of their previous name. Yes. Like you would come back as like Tomness. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Actually, that sounds too much like Mr. Tomness. Um, like <laughs> I'll take it if I'm an immortal <laughs> golden know, um, clad warrior. Um, but yeah, like it was the, yeah, for me, it's definitely the former, but given that my social lord being reincarnated as a Lord Castellan is not something I asked for. <laughs> yes. I did not ask him to yeah, be smashed sort of with Galmaraz. That yeah. was purely, that's the game. That's pure game. games. Yeah. And that happening and then him 
that being like, cause I thought in that game, I thought the Lord Change was going to be killed by the Judicators. I yeah. thought it would just get, you know, shot Whistled off down, or something. Right? Like, the fact that it was killed in a one-two punch from mm. both the Relictor, who's been pursuing this thing for <laughs> eons, year now. years, a year, <laughs> yeah. um, and the Castellan, who used to be his his minion, his minion, yeah. was so perfect. Like yeah. the lantern opening and then the lightning yeah. was like that. That was that was the moment. That's like, unbelievable, isn't it? Prior to that, it was spending seven destiny dice to kill Temptress. <laughs> yeah. With that same sorcerer lord. Was, uh, the, the way the scenario worked as well, the, the Castellan was going back to his old tower to destroy it. And then on the way, you know, just teamed up to take out the Lord of Change that was behind the whole thing. It was, it was a, a perfect storytelling moment and just dice and circumstance that did it. But yeah, th- those, th- that's what It's hard to top that in yeah, some ways. Oh, so, um, yeah. I mean, in terms of like favorite, like art, like th- that first 40k game we played where I completely, like, <laughs> I couldn't have, I couldn't have won it for you right. if I, more if I tried. No, no, it was like, like Iron Man just won't stop exploding. Disaster. Yeah. Like that, that was good, but that wasn't very cinematic. It wasn't like, you can imagine the epic movie where the standoff, like one wizard just sort of pops and then everyone else vanishes. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to think if there's anything else, but no, I think it's got to be the one, right? Given that the impact the Lord of Change had on those games, mm. and that it's still like because it's, the other reason it's great is it's going to set up such a cool moment when the Lord of Change returns. Mm. Like, there's go- like yeah. I might wait until the first time you bring Tantris back, and mm. then it's just like <laughs> I'm back, <"Caca>, motherfuckers. <laughs> That's how he sounds. I've got to. Uh, I'll, I'll certainly bring the Castellan back, and it might be part of the starting army actually, just because it's such a cool story and he's a cool character to have around. The idea that he would still be pursuing this. Force of chaos. Yeah, because and, and this like is a fun it. thing. I decided years ago, like a year ago, that my sorcerer lord and my knight quester from Silver Tower, mm. who's a celestial vindicator now, were from the same civilization, mm. and that they had very different fates, and they may have even been related to each other. Like, maybe not brother and sister, but like yeah. cousins or something. Mm. And that she went off exploring the world and died to a chaos uprising somewhere else, mm. and was blasted back up to Azir, and yeah, here she is a couple of thousand years later, and that. Her brother, cousin, whoever, uh, the composer, um, made this pact that doomed his entire civilization and has been kind of wandering out ever since and that they would re-encounter each other. And yeah. I had this idea that one day they would re-encounter each other. Mm. One as a Stormcast, one as this sort of twisted chaos sorcerer lord. <laughs> but if they re-encounter each other now, they're both Stormcast. They are. Which is kind of rad, particularly, <laughs> particularly because she's a Celestial Vindicator, mm. which is the storm host that is the least forgiving of chaos. Yeah, absolutely. Like, they're the ones that will not just redeem somebody mm. and bring them back. They want to hit them with hammers. Mm. And so I really love the idea that she's in the storm host that would never accept this. And he's back, everybody. And I'm <laughs> fine now. And I got a dog yeah. and a lantern. <laughs> um, and that is just all from dice. And that's rad. Mm. Super and that's cool. why it was great when he opened up his big light and the Birdman went away. <laughs> Beautiful moment. Beautiful moment in big men and bird lights. Uh, our final question is what is very likely to become a running theme of our question section. Thanks, uh, Tom Hatfield for opening this door forever, which is we need a word for this section, but I guess it's the novelty Primark question time. Woo. This this week's this month's novelty Primark question comes from uh Mr. Juice, who writes Dear God, I'm hungry. If the Primarchs were takeaway food, which one would you eat? Oh my goodness. Hmm. Well, there's a lot to consider there, isn't there? We don't need to go through the entire list of eighteen Primarchs again. No, is it, uh, we'll only do that for the very special <laughs> sexiest 
Primark uh, questions. I just don't know why I said that. That's going to be a can of worms. <laughs> yep. That's going to... So, but, you know, you can think, like, there's... There's something, like... What would... <laughs> I don't know. None of them seem especially edible. What is the most but, edible Primark? Because, you know, for once, this is probably an area where I don't go for Magnus off the bat. Right. Because there are a few things that I don't... I, I want reliability in my takeout, really. Something satisfying. Yeah. A sort of endless changefulness that mm. is ever-shifting and beyond you is probably not what I ideally Small want. tab of LSD. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, yeah. a takeaway Just a single tab of acid yeah. in a polystyrene takeaway box. Um, yep, so that's Magnus, so I'd skip on that as well, to yeah. be honest. Not great. Uh, Gilliman is completely, 100% one of those takeaway cheeseburgers that chicken, you regret getting. Yeah. yeah, it's just chicken and chips. Chicken. Uh, <laughs> the chicken and chips it's Primark. chicken and chips Primark. Oh, you go. Poor him. Uh, I, yeah, I like something... Just it's gonna fill you up as reliable. Maybe Regal Dawn's reliable. Vulcan, but tough. That's the trouble. Yeah, leathery, leathery. <laughs> yeah, chewy. Um, I Too think time in the pain glove. I'm tempted. I'm tempted to eat Vulcan. Which one's Vulcan? Salamanders. Okay. Well, he's, he's <laughs> roast nicely. <laughs> he's just char grilled. Uh, yeah, I can see him being a kind of solid food of the people kind of thing. Yeah, okay. like a kind of steak and kidney pie and chips. But you're eating the most beloved Primark. The one he's a perpetual. He'll come back. He also repeat oh, on you, like all, <laughs> like all yeah, good perfect, takeaway yeah. will. There you go. Uh, I'm not a fan of spicy takeaways, but right. uh, uh, a little bit of heat is good. Yeah. Okay. So no. Um, no Angron for you. No Angron for me. <laughs> you got a case of the howling Angrons the next day. Vindaloo of uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Primark takeaway experiences. Yeah. The eightfold path and toilet. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes. I think that's a good answer. I think that's a good answer, mm. personally. Yeah. One of the... Uh, Vulcan. Yeah, Vulcan. The tastiest flame-grilled Primark. Yeah, not too angry. Do send us more novelty Primark questions, because we'll do our best to figure out a funny answer to them. <laughs> Probably every month. Speaking of every month, uh, we will be back a little bit sooner this month. Hmm. Just because December things means that we'll record a little bit earlier than yep. usual. Uh, that means if you have some questions for next episode, get them in. We appreciate we received some questions we don't have time to answer on this episode. So we will hold them for the December, for the December, December episode. Uh, yeah. So let us know if you'd like to send us a question for that episode, you can do so by emailing us at miniatures at creightoncrowbar.com. And to reiterate, do email us if an event is the kind of thing you'd be interested in and particularly be helpful to know, uh, where you are. Obviously, obviously, obviously this is very likely to be a UK event just for practical reasons for us. Well, no, it's going to be a UK event. <laughs> I'm not going to promise anything else because to I'm France. Not. Yeah. Um, but the kinds of things you'd like to play and that kind of thing. Uh, you can also tweet us at minis monthly. And as ever, this podcast is supported by the Crate and Crowbar Patreon. Find out information about that. Patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. You can also, what's the other thing? Oh yeah. If you can recommend this podcast, if you like this podcast and recommend it to a friend or review it on iTunes, both of those things help us tremendously in terms of getting the word out. Mm-hmm. If you would like to experience Tom Senior on social media. I'm all over it. I'm on uh, Twitter at PCGLudo, which is LEDO, and I'm on, uh, it's better actually for miniature stuff to follow me on Instagram, where I'm Ludo Paints Minis. If you'd like to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Exit Warp, that's E-X-I-T-W-A-R-P. 
Um, and I'm on Twitter at C Thurston, although I don't really tweet anymore. So mm. just follow that for links to work, basically. Um, cool. That's, that's all, Tom. It's all for now. We'll see people in a couple of weeks in December. Month 11. See you then, folks. Cheerio.